Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The world is racing to get back to normal. We all want to meet up again. But after a year of being locked down, it takes time to get back to normal. When we are going through things, we tend to turn to our friends to talk to, but they don't necessarily give us the best advice. We all need help from time to time, and asking for support is a sign of strength. It is not weak. Help is available immediately through Talkspace, who will match your needs with a licensed professional. You could get the help right away. Start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to talkspace.com and you will get a hundred dollars off your first month if you use the promo code Sean S H A U N. That's a hundred dollars off when you use the promo code Sean at talkspace.com. Today we have a first on the channel a prison forensic psychiatrist. And Shaham is, is the correct pronunciation of your name. And Shaham has his own YouTube channel. So I urge people to go over to A Psych for Sore Minds, the link to Shaham's YouTube channel and socials will be in the description box below this video. And the YouTube channel is doing quite nicely, seeing as though it's um, only been recently started. Shaham also has a book coming out. Am I allowed to say the title? Absolutely. We believe it is going to be called In Two Minds. So he has a lot of really hard-hitting stories about the various cases that he has had to deal with over his career. Some of them are particularly harrowing, but he's a good man trying to make positive changes in the system and influence the world in a good way because we know from this channel how dark and negative the energy is in the prison system and how there's so much corruption and it's designed just to bring people back in america so they are clients for life for the prison industries so we were going to start out then talking about one of your cases whereby you said a child ended up getting killed so what led to the point where that child was killed sure well first of all thank you very much oh yeah huge thanks for coming on yeah yeah and thanks for the snacks <laughs> it's a pleasure <laughs> everyone loves a donut yeah um so yeah so this case really sticks out in my memory um it was one of the most emotionally charged cases i've seen and it's also one of the first cases where i gave evidence in court as an expert witness so i was a middle grade psychiatrist a registrar and basically there was this young 18 year old girl who had no previous issues, so no previous mental health issues, no offending. She didn't even get in trouble at school. Um, she didn't even get detention. And then she just completely randomly out of the blue became psychotic and she had all these delusional beliefs. Was she, was she on drugs or anything? No, 
No, not as far as we know. No. Um, and she believed that there was demons inside her nephew. No. She'd been acting a little bit oddly in the weeks coming up to that. So it's what we call a prodrome of psychosis. So it's not full-blown psychosis. When you say oddly, what was she doing? So she was, um, she would, she stopped listening to her sort of Miley Cyrus pop music and she'd listen to this weird instrumental music. She would stare out the window for long periods of time. She would kind of chastise her own family for doing really weird stuff. So for example, she said that this sitcom that they used to sit down and watch together was smut and used to turn it and would turn the TV off in front of them. So her family were obviously concerned and they tried to seek psychiatric Who, who was help. she living with at that point? Uh, so she came from a quite a, a tight knit um, family of immigrants. So it was her parents, her, her two brothers, I believe, uh, and the, the son, her nephew, who she ended up killing. So she was just babysitting him uh, as she had many, many times before. She made a few odd remarks that morning everyone else left the house and then basically she smothered and killed this child oh my god what did yeah. she use to smother a uh, pillow yeah oh and then when the god. police how old was the child you said uh, i think she's coming on to three. Oh, yeah. yeah so it was absolutely shocking this is not the typical kind of case i've seen this is one of the most extreme and what was what did after that then what did the perpetrator do so she just went about her day and then her mother came back so the child's grandmother and thought she went about a day as if nothing had happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think she was in her own little psychotic mind. Yeah. Uh, and then her mother thought that the child was was asleep. Oh my god! Didn't didn't realize for about half an hour when he tried to when she tried to raise the child that he was actually dead. And then she was making comments about how she was going to reincarnate him, and you just have to believe. Then the police got called. She was saying the same kind of things. Uh, she obviously got arrested. Then she was remanded into prison and it was actually quite hard to assess her because so i i then got the referral yeah. so i was working in a medium secure forensic female unit at the time went to see her in prison and she was really difficult to assess because she was so paranoid and psychotic that she wouldn't really let me into a psyche so she was very she was sort of superficially polite but very dismissive she would say things like you know i can't remember when i asked her about what happened and she would say, I've already told you that, doctor, or I don't see how that's relevant. So there was no way in to try and assess her. So what was your approach then when you've got those barriers in front of you? Um, so when I have patients like that, you've got to be as non-threatening and as empathetic as you can be. So you don't ask them about what happened until the very end when you can slip it in. You just try and start a conversation with them. And yeah. more often than not, they kind of let you in eventually. But that didn't happen in this particular case. She just really wouldn't really engage me in any way. So I was convinced that she was psychotic. Uh, and luckily, the judge, I think, agreed. I think had it been different set of circumstances, had she possibly been male or had she been antisocial with a history of offending, I, I think it would have been a harder sell. But the judge agreed to, to let me move her on from a, onto a remand section of the Mental Health Act. Was the prosecutor pushing for something else? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that comes a bit further down, that down the line. So okay. we had her for a couple of months and treating her in hospital was also a challenge because again, she wouldn't engage with people. She wouldn't take medication. So then we had this dilemma. Do we force medication on her, like physically hold her down and inject her, which you can do under the Mental Health Act, or do you try and build a relationship? But because the remand section was relatively short, I think it was only three months, which is not a long time in, in psychiatric terms, we had to bite the bullet and, and inject her. 
and she started getting better within the first few weeks. I mean, she didn't fully resolve her psychosis until months later down the line after the court case. Uh, but as you say, so when it came to actually giving evidence in a trial, so that was the first time I'd, I'd given evidence. It was at the Old Bailey and it was a murder trial as well. So it was, you know, it was really been thrown into the deep water. Um, the prosecution were trying to get her in prison uh, for life imprisonment. And I thought that was completely the wrong thing for this young woman. Uh, so I had to just extract all the psychiatric symptoms that I could. She made a few odd comments on the ward. So she would she would ask me about reincarnation. And then when I asked further questions about why she was asking, she would try and retract it all. So there were little glimpses of psychosis, but nothing overt and barn door. Uh, but we convinced the, uh, the judge to put her in a hospital order, which means she, she goes to long-term rehabilitation. Yeah, so that's one of the reasons that it was so emotionally impactful was the actual offence itself and the innocence of the perpetrator. But the other thing was that part of the therapy was uh, with her trying to reconnect with her family. So I'd be sitting in a room with this young woman, her brother, who is the father of, of, of the murdered child, and trying to sort of piece together uh, this sort of fractured relationship. Oh my God. Yeah. So the brother then and the mum of the kid... What were their attitude towards the sister? So I'd never actually met the mum. She was too upset to ever come in and visit. Yeah. I think she visited the entire time. I met uh, the father of the child, that's her brother, and also yeah. her father, the perpetrator's father. I have to say she was she was quite lucky in a way because they were very sort of open to to understanding that she was unwell and, really? and they were very helpful in terms of her rehabilitation. Oh so for example, after she finally got discharged years later, they were, they were happy to have her live in the same house, et cetera. Wow. It doesn't always happen with the patients that we see. Wow. Um, yeah. So that, that one really sticks in my mind, definitely. As she, when she got on the medicine then, you said she started to come out of the psychosis. Mm. So in court then, by the time it was coming to court, was she, look, was she behaving more normally? Uh, no, no. At that point, she... Had, she mentioned a few things that were quite bizarre. So I, I talked about reincarnation before. Yeah. She would also be quite preoccupied with religion. So I, she asked me a question like something like, um, if a Muslim eats pork by accident, will they still go to hell? Like just completely randomly in the middle of a conversation. So she, yeah. she had these weird beliefs, but she wasn't, uh, she was a bit reserved about it all. But to answer your question, no, in, in court, she, she didn't interact with anybody, didn't say anything. So we were quite lucky, I think, that the judge believed that she was psychotic. But further down the line, months after medication, she she came uh, she kind of came back alive. Basically, she she came out of the psychosis and she reported retrospectively all these things that she was experiencing. So she told me that she was seeing like shapes of uh, gods and angels in the clouds before the offence. She was seeing like uh, shapes in the walls when she was in prison, and she was seeing shapes in the curtains while she was in the psychiatric unit. And then after all of that, she obviously once the psychosis went what she actually did and the consequence of her actions started seeping into her, her psyche. So another part of her treatment was just to help her get over this depression when she'd realized what she'd done. Yeah. My goodness. When she realized what she had done, was she horrified then and yeah. showing remorse? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, again, it was really difficult because she was so upset and she was just burst into tears that yeah. it's quite hard to, you know, discuss and, and break down the mental uh, the mental processes behind her thoughts yeah. when she was so upset yeah so it took a long time how long ago was this did the crime occur i think it was 2015 i think yeah and has she been okay since then uh unfortunately i don't know that much because as a register as a registrar we move on every six months uh, so i was only involved with the care it's different now that i'm a consultant 
So, but I happen to be uh, quite pally with the team, so I do get updates on her every once in a while because obviously yeah. it's, it's a case that I'm interested in. But yeah, she she has been released. She's back with the family. Does she still uh, live yeah. with the family? Yeah. What was the parents' attitude? Her own parents' attitude? Um, I think I never really got a handle of of what her mum thought about it because she yeah. was just too upset to uh, to engage with us at all. Uh, I think the father and, and her brother were quite forgiving, actually. Yeah, I think they realised because it was just so inexplicable and random that they knew that you know she didn't, she couldn't have had the intention, she couldn't have known what she was doing at the time. Yeah. How long before the crime were the symptoms manifesting? So I think this prodrome happened for about three, four weeks. What's so the prodrome? The prodrome mean? is these um, these weird. It's like, it's like a the harbinger to psychosis. Yeah. So it wasn't full on overt psychosis, but it was just these odd comments and and odd behaviour. So for a few weeks. But I should also say that that her case is very unusual. Um, when for the vast majority of people, when psychosis comes on, it's a lot more obvious, mm. a lot more overt. She was just uh, quite an un unusual case. So people can live a completely normal life. And then the brain chemicals can change to the extent where this can happen. Yeah, yeah. Usually, for most patients, there are risk factors. So usually there's a some sort of family history of mental illness. In a lot of the patients I see, they've got other background issues like, you know, poverty, homelessness, or the victims of abuse. Those are the most of the, the clientele that I see. So her case was uh, exceptional. Wow. Did you ever come across any other cases um, comparable to that or similar? Uh, actually, yes. So quite recently, I assessed a mother who uh, became, she, she got postnatal psychosis and she killed her own, her own oh baby. Oh my God. Um, I only did a one-off assessment. So I've only ever met her once for a court report. She wasn't, she didn't uh, belong to me for my, for the rehabilitation like the, like the first young lady. So in this case then, she actually gives birth and the act of giving birth changes the brain chemicals, does yeah, it? Absolutely, yeah. And then the behavior changes yeah. and they go into full psychosis. Yeah, so it's called postnatal psychosis or purpural psychosis. And it yeah. happens in about three or four out of uh, every thousand mothers. Uh, usually it's different from most other psychoses in that it happens really quickly, but it tends to resolve quite quickly as well. So it lasts about 10 weeks. And unfortunately, antipsychotics take about four to six weeks before they start working so it's actually really hard to to treat to catch it in time so it's more about keeping the mother and the baby safe uh than trying to sort of chemically treat the illness yeah. what measures are implemented to keep mother and baby safe do they have to be separated sometimes yeah so you need a forensic psychiatrist like myself to do a risk assessment because not everybody who has this kind of psychosis uh ends up with such risky behaviors so you can't Obviously, you can't, it's not humane to just separate every mother from their baby. So you have to do a really thorough, regular risk assessment to really test the waters to see what their thoughts and their delusions are. And if there is risk, then uh, you can separate them. Or uh, having said that, there are mother and baby units. So this is a new area of forensic psychiatry that's growing. There's not that many of them in, in the country uh, where the mother and the baby are both kept together, but they're in a psychiatric hospital. And it's kind of, it's, it's set up to help uh, nurse a baby so you know there's equipment nappies there's like pediatric nurses etc yeah. uh, but as i say that's that's only a new kind of resource that's that's only started to grow recently so the majority of women can't get into them because there's just not enough beds in this case then what were the symptoms that came before the crime so it was not too dissimilar to the first young lady actually um she had so i should say that she's had children in the past from a separate marriage uh i think there were roughly six and eight years before i saw her 
and she became psychotic both of those times, but she didn't hurt the children. She just did some other slightly bizarre things. I think she attacked her mother randomly once and picked up a table on another occasion. Um, so she started having these, she was hearing the voice of an angel. So she was Muslim and she uh, was aware of the story of the angel uh, Abraham, I think, who was asked to sacrifice a child. So she was hearing the voice of this angel saying that you have to sacrifice your child and that hell's about to come and the world's going to end. Uh, it was actually when the coronavirus was starting as well. So that kind of tied into everything. Uh, so she was convinced that she had to do it. Yeah. So when these symptoms started to manifest, what was the diagnosis at that point? Uh, well, the, the problem was she wasn't assessed uh, mm -hmm. initially. So she, to be fair, I think that was to do with her actual life circumstances. So from, from what I can gather, she was in quite a difficult situation. She had quite an abusive husband who wouldn't really let her leave the house. She'd only been in the UK for um, less than two months. So she was uh, from Turkey. So she'd mm. only just come over. Uh, and so nobody knew what was going on. It was only after she, she did the deed and then she phoned her husband straight away to tell him. Not in a kind of angry, hostile, threatening way. She just didn't know what was going on. So she phoned him, he phoned the police. Um, but when I saw her, which is a f about two or three months later, she had gotten better with some antipsychotic treatment. Did she take them voluntarily? She did, yeah, yeah. But as we were saying before, postnatal uh, psychosis tends to tends to resolve fairly quickly anyway, compared to other forms of psychosis. So I think she was already just naturally going to get better anyway. But yeah, what happened in the court case? Um, so it's very similar to the first one. I I. Uh, made a suggestion of not guilty by reason of insanity, which the judge accepted. Uh, and she got a hospital order, which means hospital for long-term treatment instead of prison. And she got a restriction order as well. So these are reserved for the most high-risk patients. So it's where the Ministry of Justice steps in. So usually with most patients that are in these units on hospital orders, the consultant forensic psychiatrist is in charge of when they get leave, when they get discharged. But for the most riskiest patients that have committed these, this kind of level of crime, they have this extra layer of protection called a restriction order. So the Ministry of Justice needs to give the nod for any decision. So if I think she's ready for leave or for discharge, I have to write to the Ministry of Justice, give them an update report, and they say yay or nay. Wow. Good grief. This is absolutely fascinating. I, I, I wonder if you guys are as engaged as I am right now watching this out there. Please let us know in the comments what you think. So your book then, In Two Minds, how did you structure that? Uh, I got a lot of help <laughs> from an editor. <laughs> uh, so when I first wrote it, I tried to do it in sections. So, so in my career, I've worked in prisons, I've worked in courts, and I've worked in these secure units at different times. So I tried to do it like that, but I was convinced that it's better to do a sort of chronological flow. So I've just kind of gone through the last sort of 10 years of my life. I didn't initially want to talk about myself too much because I just felt a bit like I was bragging, but my editor convinced me to put in little bits of what was going on in my life yeah. at the time. So it's more chronological and then just bringing in cases that are interesting. Yeah. And I, I'll tell you what I found odd was that I'd forgotten so many of my cases. Mm -hmm. So I've got them all in my files on my laptop and I had to pull them up. To, uh, to get the details. But <laughs> How I've many seen, cases like, are there over the years? Um, so I think I've probably assessed about 500 cases for a criminal court. Yeah, probably about wow. one or two a week, generally. And what made you want to get into this profession? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. So I think I've always been a bit fascinated with uh, criminality. So when I was a kid, I'd listen to gangster rap, like mm. NWA, Sleep Dog, <laughs> uh, and I'd watch gangster films, you know, Goodfellas, yeah. Scarface. I was just into it when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, and I never really thought that there is a profession 
that's sort of related to that in medicine. Mm. I kind of did medicine because my parents suggested that I should, not because I was particularly that uh, driven to do it. Mm. Did a medical degree, became a doctor. I, at that stage, I didn't even know that forensic psychiatry existed. Yeah. Uh, and then I kind of stumbled into psychiatry kind of accidentally just because I had no plan, no clue of what I wanted to do when I graduated. I just yeah. spent all my uni days just uh, just messing around <laughs> and just going out rather than, <laughs> rather than concentrating and studying. Uh, and then suddenly I had this decision of what to specialize in. So I actually did other things first. I worked as an A&E doctor and then mm. I kind of did psychiatry, a, a placement on a, uh, on a whim in Australia. So I was living in Australia at the time and I just connected to, to mentally ill people. I think they're the delusions and the thoughts and the stories they have, some of which are not based in reality, are mm. just fascinating. Um, and then after I came back to the UK, I trained in psychiatry and then within psychiatry, there's lots of subspecialties. So, you know, mm. child and adolescent, old age, for example, and forensics is a specialty, but I would... I would argue that it's probably the most, the least well-known about yeah. and the most secretive, even within psychiatry, because there's not that many forensic units. Yeah. So there's not that many placements. And I kind of did it on a whim, to be honest. So as a senior house officer, you, you move around every six months and it was the very last placement that I did before I had to choose which one to specialize in before you become a registrar. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really necessarily think I was going to do it for a living. But yeah. then like just from my first day on a forensic ward, I was just hooked because you get to know uh, as well as the horrific nature of of the crimes, you get to know the patients really intimately mm -hmm. because they're there for a long period of time. So on a general adult ward, your patient might be there for typically a couple of months. Mm. You do get patients that are there for longer, but it's rare. But in a forensic psychiatry ward, because there's so many risks and because generally they tend to be so unwell, they're there for years. So you get to mm. really know them sort of intimately and, and you get to meet their family, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, yeah. I was just interested in the criminality side. Well, you've got a really good vibe about you and like a very soothing voice. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier, like when you're talking to them, how you've got to present yourself in a certain way to yeah. get their trust. And like, I, I can imagine your vibe and your voice would be like, has like a tranquilizing effect on them, do you think? <laughs> Versus someone who just comes in and is yeah. abrupt and discourteous. Yeah. I think that of all the fields of medicine, psychiatry, you need, uh, you need to, your communication skills have to be really sharp. Because, yeah. you know, a heart surgeon, whatever, they don't have to necessarily get the patient on site, but you, you need to in psychiatry, yeah. And I've certainly seen some, I think most psychiatrists are good. Most of my colleagues that I've worked with are good, but I've yeah. certainly seen some who are a bit abrupt. And mm. yeah, you kind of have to adapt the the um, the assessment to whoever's in front of you and you've got to mm. think on your feet as you're doing it. So sometimes they're quite open and honest and you can have a normal conversation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to be very uh, sort of gentle and soothe your way in, like with that young woman. Mm. Sometimes they're so ill that you you know you've probably only got a five minute window to talk to them. Really? So all of the pleasantries goes out of the, out of the window. You've got to try and get some symptomatology out of them as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they're aggressive. So you've got to, you know, watch that you, know, you don't um, provoke them even accidentally. Have you been attacked? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I've actually been uh, punched twice in my career. What um, what led up to that? Oddly, both both incidents were actually really similar in that both times. So once was in Australia, so mm. that was in a general non forensic ward, and the second time was actually the very first my very first day in a forensic unit, <laughs> literally. Um, and they were both quite similar in that I didn't know the, the guy. Both times there were men who I didn't know, never spoken to. Both times they were for some reason transfixed on me when I got into the ward. Both times they kind of came up to me. One was actually in a wheelchair in Australia. He was just asking me these bizarre questions, which didn't really make what sense. What questions? Uh, so the one in Australia was just asking me, he kept asking me where I was from, but he wasn't believing me when I answered. He was like, no, 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 what's the truth? 
And I was like, I just told you. And then I kind of walked off and spoke to the patient that was there to see. And this guy had two broken legs because he'd tried to commit suicide a couple of weeks earlier. So oh he had two God. broken legs. And he stood up on two broken legs. No! Punched me. No! Right on the back of the head. And I was, I was facing a different way, so I didn't even see him coming. Oh! And I turned around the floor and I couldn't see anybody because he'd fallen on the floor because uh, he's got two broken legs. Whoa. Like, what happened? And then, that is one of the craziest scenes I can possibly imagine. And then on the forensic unit, it's very similar. It was a, a guy who was really transfixed with me. He was asking weird questions. So he seemed convinced that we knew each other from childhood. And he was saying things like, I'm, I'm sorry, I bullied you. I didn't mean to do that. And I was like, uh, with respect, I've never met you before. Uh, and I was in an interview room interviewing another patient who had gone there to see. I was actually trying to show off to my consultant because it was my first day. So I went in before the ward round to see some of my own patients so that I could say to my consultant, you know, this is what I think. Uh, and then um, as soon as I walked out of the interview room, ran up to me, punched me again from the side so I didn't even see it oh. coming. I was just like, fuck was that? Uh, and then the nurses had wrestled them onto the floor. Yeah. yeah. But the other thing was, is that both times, because there was no build up to threat, mm. I didn't feel threatened. It wasn't that traumatic for me. It's the anticipation, because, anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. It just kind of happened. I was just like, both times. It's all yeah. we're very fast. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what I think is quite interesting is that I don't generally feel unsafe or threatened when I'm in either prison or court. Mm. Because, broadly speaking, the people that I see want to make a good impression because they know that I'm writing an assessment for them. Yeah. So generally, even if they're nasty, antisocial, hostile, they'll, they'll tone it down to be polite to me generally. Mm -hmm. And the ones that are agitated and aggressive... Uh, tend to be completely psychotic and they have no insights. They don't even know what's going on. Mm. And generally they're already uh, either on a two or three man unlocked, which as I'm sure you know, means that the prison officers, there have to be two or three of them to let them yeah. out, of the, out of the cell. Uh, or if it's in court, then there's custody staff there. So generally the ones that are agitated and angry are already sort of, there's a layer of protection. So I think it's actually the secure units, the hospitals that that where I felt the most threat and both times where I was assaulted was in a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. And I, I, to, to be fair, it's not, it's not like there's always a, an air of tension or aggression. It's not like that constantly, mm. but by definition, the patients that are there have some level of previous violence or risks. So it's, there's always a potential. Yeah. yeah. So from my own incarceration experience, I learned there's a whole category of mentally ill people called shit slingers <laughs> who specialize in doing things with poo. Yeah. Have you encountered that in your um, profession? Yes, I've I've seen quite a few. So it's, immediately, I'm thinking of healthcare units within prisons. Yeah. So healthcare units are, are wards within a prison, and technically, they're supposed to be there for psychiatric and physical patients. Mm. In my years of of working as a prison psychiatrist, I, I barely saw anybody in there for physical issues. They were almost all psychotic, waiting to go to hospital. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a lot of people. Well, I say a lot, maybe. 10 to 12 over my career who've, who've had like dirty process who put feces all over the wall very few actually slinging shit I think maybe once or twice and it wasn't to me it was just what I've heard from the handover from the guards yeah yeah. Wow. I think maybe because I work in a, I've worked mostly in female prisons I think the the level of shit slinging I imagine is a bit the proportions <laughs> <laughs> so have you assessed any serial killers or famous gangsters or anything like that <laughs> uh, no so I have, so a, a, I think uh, a misconception about forensic psychiatrists mm. is that we kind of analyze serial killers. Um, Clarice. Uh, <laughs> indeed, yeah. Um, and I've only came across one case of a man who's killed multiple times, three times, but all three times there were ex-partners. So that's not technically a serial killer because it's not like Whoa, a Whoa, slow down, slow down. So you had to diagnose a man who'd killed three times. Yeah. Had he got away with 
Three murders and he was in prison? Or had he got released, killed, got released, killed? The latter. Yeah. <gasps> Go yeah. on, give us the whole story, please. <laughs> so I, again, this is a one-off assessment, so he wasn't my patient on an yeah. inpatient water. You I, didn't send him once. back out into the world <laughs> to kill again. <laughs> um, but what happened was, so everything that I know is from the notes. Yeah. So he was in his 60s, I think, when I saw him. It's probably five or six years ago, a while ago. And the first time he, uh, it was, it was with an ex-partner. I think they'd had an argument on a balcony and he pushed her off and he got a found a finding or a mitigation of self-defense because they were actually physically having a fight. So I think he served something like three or four years. That was the first one, was it? That was the first one, yeah. That was back in the 80s, yeah. Okay. At that point, there was no uh, concerns about this man's mental health at all. Yeah. Second time, I think was mid-90s and he... Again, there was no there was no indication that mental illness drove the offence, but it was again a, a domestic abuse kind of situation. Uh, he again had an argument with a partner, and I think he uh, hit her over the head repeatedly with a, an ashtray and uh, killed her, and had quite a long prison sentence for that for that one. Really? And it was while he was in prison that his mental health deteriorated quite significantly, so he developed mm. quite a severe depression. To the point he wasn't eating, uh, wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating for you know weeks. So he got transferred to a psychiatric unit, and then he got sort of tied in with the forensic psychiatry mm. services. And he, to all intents and purposes, from what I can tell, seemed rehabilitated. So you can't you can't keep your patients in there indefinitely forever. I mean, there's humanitarian reasons, but also practical reasons because you need the beds to open up. You need yeah. a flow of patients. You have to discharge patients at mm. some point so that new patients can come in. Otherwise, you'll just have psychotic people in, in prison that, that need mental health treatment. So to all intents and purposes, he seemed rehabilitated. He'd been using his lever um, well. He had not caused any problems on the wards pretty much for the, for the entire time he was there. No arguments, no pushing boundaries with nurses, etc. So he got released and he was under supervision uh, by both the Ministry of Justice and Forensic Services as well. The one thing that was a bit dodgy is that he was supposed to inform his social worker or his psychiatrist every time he was in a new romantic relationship mm. or if he moves into a house with like a, a minor in it. And he started a new romantic relationship that ended up being his third victim. And uh, he didn't tell anybody about that. So that was arguably that was one sort of risk factor. But then when the team spoke to this woman, she seemed indifferent, frankly, to his history. She really? kind of loved him anyway and just wanted to be in this relationship despite what she was told. Uh, and then sort of maybe two years after that first contact with the team, he had another argument. Um, he ended up strangling and killing this woman, then immediately tried to kill himself. So he ran out like literally immediately afterwards and jumped in front of a bus. And then when I saw him in prison, he was like in a wheelchair. So he was in a wheelchair. He had like both of his arms amputated. <sighs> and, uh, yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh Which oddly, goodness. I don't want to have to word this carefully, but perversely, that actually helps with his risk management because it means that if he ever does get released in the future, he's far less risky because you, know, you can't kill people with no arms, basically. <sighs> oh, good grief. I'm stunned. Um, the second 
murder victim. Did she know about the first, do you know? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Because unfortunately, the I've only got the notes to go by because yeah. he wasn't really telling me anything. And I think things were far less well documented in the 80s and 90s. They weren't all the reports and everything, all the admin stuff that we have to do now. So you just basically can only go on what the doctor decided to write. Third um, yeah. murder victim. Do you know what started the argument or it's about? Um, yes, I do actually. Because well, I've got his version of it. Obviously, yeah. that, that was it. Uh, so she was supposed to help him with some sort of paperwork, like getting his driving license, I think. And she, they, they didn't live together, but she lived around the corner. And apparently she didn't turn up. He got really angry. And then she came around the next morning to, to go with him to, to do the paperwork. And according to him, she attacked him first. But obviously, oh, yeah. we, we don't know that for, to be true. So for this to happen three times, like he got a pass on the first one, self-defense, do you think he was playing the system? Good question, Sean. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think he was intending to kill another person or to kill another partner mm. in the future. I don't think he thought, right, as soon as I get out, I'm getting out of here, I'm going to start another relationship and I'm going to kill her too. I don't think. I can't know for definite. Yeah. But I think, obviously, clearly, he's a dangerous man who's got a pattern. Mm. But at the risk of trying to sound too defensive about my profession, you can only go on what you see. You can't mm. predict if anybody's uh, going to be dangerous in the future. Mm. And you can't keep somebody in indefinitely. You know, particularly in prison, there's, there's a sentence. When you get to the end of the sentence, uh, unless there's good reason, you get released. Yeah. In forensic psychiatric units, there is no sentence. It's up to the consultant to decide when you discharge somebody. But you can't keep, keep people in indefinitely. Mm. Uh, again, because it just clogs up the system. So you can only go with what's in front of you. And what's in front of you is whether they've engaged in, in treatment, whether they're taking their medications, whether they're listening to boundaries on, on the ward, whether they're starting problems with other people on the ward. So it's not too dissimilar to prison in that people have a history of violence. There's a lot of young, angry men. Mm -hmm. So as you'd imagine, there's, there's beefs and there's arguments. So there's a lot of opportunity for people to, to, to fall out. Mm -hmm. And he, like many other patients, uh, at least on the surface, seemed absolutely fine. There was no, there was no violence or aggression given leave, used his leave appropriately, came back on time, you know, um, passed his drug tests and his breathalyzers, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite hard to justify keeping somebody in indefinitely, mm. uh, you know, when most of your patients have this kind of background. I mean, killing a number of times is unusual, but everyone has some sort of history of violence to be there in the first place. Yeah. So you've got to make a decision to, to discharge people at some point. What kind of a sentence did he get on the third one? Uh, on the third one, so... I think his lawyers were trying to push me to uh, to suggest that he had, well, he did have mental illness, he had depression, mm. but to suggest that he was uh, not criminally culpable. But I didn't believe that at all. I think he, he, he perfectly knew what he was doing. Mm. So I took away the uh, the suggestion of a psychiatric defense. So he ended up with a prison sentence. Um, I th off the top of my head, I think it was nine or 10 years altogether. Nine or 10 years, that's it? Yeah, I think so. Third, yeah. three people dead. Yeah. Whoa. Wow, I'm just absolutely mind-blown by that. Um, I suppose, I, I don't know this for a fact, but this is just, this is just uh, speculation, but I suppose because of the injuries, the, the injuries he yeah. was not seen as, as high-risk as yeah. an able-bodied person. Yeah. Good grief. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. So what other killer cases then have you assessed like you've done 500 cases how much of them are, how many of them are killers <laughs> um probably not that many actually probably less than 10 less, less than, than 10. 10 yeah so I, I, the vast majority are attempted murder assault arson yeah. 
uh, sometimes sexual assaults. Yeah. Yeah. Let's um, continue down the list of the killers then. <laughs> What's the next one that you found particularly harrowing or challenging? Um, um, I'm trying to think. So there is another murder case. I, I, I have seen other murder cases, but to be honest, they're not that... Mm. There's not apart from the ones I've talked about, they weren't that interesting. So mm. I was only there to rule out mental illness. Yeah. So of the defendants that I see, I uh, for medical legal work as an expert witness, by mm. far most of them either don't have a mental illness, or if they do, they were they weren't so unwell mm. that they didn't know what they were doing. So yeah. they don't get the insanity plea. So my role is to 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 sift the actual ones that are mentally ill and need to go to hospital mm. from the ones that are not. So the other murder cases I've seen have not been that interesting in that there was not really any psychiatry. I was just there to, gotcha. uh, to rule out. Actually, um, having said that, there is one, another one that's just jumped onto my Go mind. On, yeah, it's It's got um, slightly spooky similarities to the other guy who ended up in a wheelchair because this perpetrator, as I'll tell you, also ended up in a wheelchair. Oh, so um, there is a farmer who I assessed um, three, four years ago. He was in a prison in Manchester. And he had basically, his wife had been, him and his wife had separated. They were not divorced yet, but they were going through proceedings. And he, his wife was having another relationship and he, he knew about this. And his wife, uh, he basically found his wife and this man in a pub. Um, she went home and he followed her home, got a shotgun and he shot her dead in front of uh, his, in front of their teenage son. Uh, and then he turned the gun on himself and tried to kill himself, shot himself in the face basically, but didn't die. Uh, so when I saw him, it was probably about two months later, he was also in a wheelchair, very severely disfigured. Um, he, so he didn't have a jaw, didn't have a bottom half of the face and the plastic <gasps> surgeons had tried to like reconstruct his face. But the thing that I remember was that they'd taken um, grafts of his skin and the grafts were like different colors. So it just, it just, um, it just looked really weird. Like there was different flaps of skin that were all slightly different shades. Um, and he couldn't speak because he didn't have a face uh, and he had to communicate through like an iPad. So I just remember sitting there and I asked him and he couldn't, couldn't type for shit. Um, what was his attitude towards what he'd done? Well, actually I have to say, so he, he did have mental health illnesses in that he was genuinely depressed, I think, and he was an alcoholic, but again, generally speaking those kind of illnesses don't change your criminal culpability in the way that a psychosis can like hearing voices for example uh to his credit he he completely took responsibility he didn't try and you know uh weasel his way out of it at all he he, he told me straight up you know i completely regret what i did i was in a jealous rage i tried to kill myself I, was, I, was, I wish i was dead right now i take full responsibility so yeah unlike a lot of defendants he he just sort of fessed up to it and, and even when I was asking about the mental health symptoms he even told me he said look you can ask these questions but it doesn't make a difference I know I did but obviously I had to do the assessment properly for the for the court report what did yeah. the court rule on that one uh, that's quite straightforward um, yeah so you just got a prison sentence like how yeah. long I actually don't know I'm afraid because mm. I've put in the evidence and then I gave evidence in the trial but um, so again he would probably have got a reduced sentence because he was like he couldn't really harm people in the future yeah he was Ability. Yeah, I think it depends on the judge, but I think that's one of the factors we take yeah. into account. Yeah. Wow. This is insane. So in Arizona then, um, I think I learned that prison was the biggest house of mentally ill people. 
Have you ever worked in Broadmoor? I did work in Broadmoor as a registrar, yeah. So as a as a middle grade uh, psychiatrist, but I was there as a special interest. So I, I went there once a week for about seven or eight months altogether. Really? Yeah. You're the first person I think we've interviewed who's worked in Broadmoor, isn't he? Because we've got a documentary coming out about Jimmy Savile. Right. And um, if you ever want some sound bites, I'd be uh, happy to provide them. Yeah, that's good. Let's do it. What do you think about Jimmy Savile being given access to Broadmoor? Yeah, it's just insane. Absolutely blows my mind. Because uh, now, or, and, and in the recent past, in, in the last sort of five, 10 years, the security of, of Broadmoor is really high. So every time I went in, as a, even the regular members of staff, even the uh, consultant psychiatrists who work there every day, they had to go through an airport level of security to get in and get out every time. Um, and there's really lengthy background checks so not too dissimilar to working in a prison so you know once you apply for your job and you get the job there's another at least four or five months of them doing security vetting so that's what happens now for staff to get into Broadmoor so taking that into context somebody who's not even a staff member to be given his own keys he's a celebrity I just I, I just can't understand it cannot fathom are the high security measures now in response to cases like Savile's um I I think they're probably more in response to what happens in Broadmoor and the, the risk of patients in Broadmoor rather than Jimmy Savile specifically. Yeah. What does happen in Broadmoor? What do you mean? You said it's, it's more of a case of what actually happens yeah. in Broadmoor. What does actually um, happen? So I, I can tell you about my experience. So I yes, worked please. in the high dependency unit. So that wasn't the most riskiest uh, level. That's the, it's the second from the top. And oddly, I have to say, it actually felt quite safe. And the reason it felt quite safe was because the patients there, most of them are probably never leaving hospital. So I think there was maybe 10 there altogether, at least half, maybe even more, was so unwell, even with years worth of psychotic antipsychotic treatments, even with combinations, high doses, their mental illness just was so uh, entrenched and so severe that it, they would never get better. Um, and so they're managed in a, a way that keeps them safe. So for example, they're, they're kept in long-term seclusion. So unlike most patients in most psychiatric units, they're in their cells for 22, 23 hours a day. And the they're only let out, some of them have had previous fights and previous beefs. So the nurses are, are I have to say the nurses are excellent at Broadmoor. They're really clued up onto who can be out in the same time in the, in the communal areas to make sure that they don't have problems. And they're all, there's such a high level of observation. So even if I was speaking to a patient just to have a chat or just to check their mental state, for example, we changed the dose of their medication a couple of weeks ago. I want to see how they're doing. Even if I'm just sitting with them, there'd be a nurse who would who'd only be tasked with sitting in the corner of the room or on the other side of the glass window checking on us. So paradoxically, even though it's the most violent patients, I actually felt the safest and I felt safer than when I worked in medium secure units of which I've spent far more time in because the patients are walking around and, and there are you know people that don't get on and there are, there are people that are psychotic. So there's I actually experienced more violence in the medium secure units and, and the atmosphere was tenser than it was in Broadmoor. Yeah. So how big is Broadmoor? Like how many patients and how are they categorised? Um, now you're asking. So I, since, I've, since I've worked there, they've actually moved sites. So that the new building, I, th I can't say exactly, but I think it's something um, around 150 patients maybe, but you'll have to double check, I'm afraid. Uh, so they're generally categorised in terms of how far down the rehabilitation pathway they are. So you've got your acute patients that come in straight away. And they're going to be assessed for probably a minimum of six months. So you actually know what, fully what their risks are and, and potentially what they can do in what scenario, what situation. You've got a handle on 
what their diagnosis is and what medications they they need and then depending on how quickly they appear to be improving there's different streams of rehabilitation so there's some wards where you're expecting them to be discharged within three four years and there's other streams where like the place i was working where they might be there for for decades if not forever so it's, they tend to be categorized on on how not just how dangerous they are but how quickly they're likely to to move through move through the system yeah because like the craze was in there weren't they peter yeah. sutcliffe the yeah, yorkshire yeah. ripper was in there. so I've, I've done videos on all of those people that you've mentioned have you channel. yeah yeah so what did you have to say on the yorkshire ripper uh so the yorkshire ripper was that's peter sutcliffe the thing that i th think is the most interesting about the case is this is that i think that he was clearly psychotic when he uh did what he did when he murdered those women didn't he say something religious as well this seems to be a recurring theme the religious yeah. thing yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and so he clearly had a range of psychotic symptoms so he was hearing voices he was uh, he was convinced that he'd met the queen in a bar like he actually genuinely thought it was the queen um and there were some other just odd statements that he'd made but he was not found there was no sort of uh, psychiatric defense and he was not transferred to, to hospital initially even though a number of forensic psychiatrists i think there was something like three or four forensic psychiatrists that said you know, he's clearly psychotic he needs hospital but the judge and the jury overturned that they basically ignored the evidence which is their right to do you know we don't we don't have the legal authority to make decisions about people's disposals we can only advise the majority of the time the judge listens to us sometimes they don't um and then he was transferred to prison i think he was attacked a couple of times in prison and then eventually was sent to broadmoor i think maybe about two years roughly from when he was first imprisoned which suggests to me that he's he was psychotic and he was unwell the whole time because you don't you don't have these psychotic symptoms then they disappear and then they come back two years later it's, it's very unlikely so i think that the nature of of his offenses were so extreme that the public just wanted to bathe for blood which I, I can understand that sentiment you know i'm a doctor i'm a psychiatrist so to my my perspective is that if somebody needs treatment they need treatment i try and take the the um the ethical issues out of it and the moral justifications not to say i don't have thoughts i just i keep them separate but I can understand why people, members of the public, just want to see this man punished. So I think that's why he was sent to prison, but he should have actually gone to hospital, in my view, from the beginning. So did he have a family at the time of these murders? Um, I, I honestly don't know. I don't okay. know. Do you know, do you know anything about his relationship with Jimmy Savile? Because there's theories that they had a relationship before the murders. No, I don't know, I'm afraid. Okay. So you said you did a video on the craze? Yep. On, uh, what did you have to say on them? On Ronnie Gray. Um, so what I think is quite interesting about the craze is I think there's a, a number of explanations of why they turned out to be antisocial. So I think the fact that they didn't really have much of a father figure. I think the fact that they run around in quite a tight circle. So I think because they're in this little gang, they almost gave each other permission to break the law. I think they were quite... Um, diverse in their criminal activities and i think because they became such celebrities uh, and because they ruled with intimidation they almost had to keep up this this image of being of being um really violent and really notorious and ronnie in particular as you know he was bisexual some people say he was gay uh, and i think that was less accepted back in uh, back in 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 the time so that was the, was it the 60s or 70s 60s isn't it we just did the craze tour didn't we this week 60s what what was the era of the craze? 60s. Yeah, especially back in the 60s. I think he was hypersensitive 
to being publicly insulted. Plus you throw in paranoid schizophrenia, which is what he was diagnosed with. On top of that, you got an extra level of paranoia. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those things in combination combined uh, made him uh, lash out, act out, kill the person that he killed. Uh, the other thing that I think is quite unique about the craze is this, is that, you know, there's always questions of nature versus nurture, like why people become violent, why people offend. What you've got is, is an extremely unusual situation because you've got two genetically identical people, one of whom has schizophrenia and one of whom doesn't, right? So schizophrenia tends to run in families. And if one twin has it, there's something like a 70 or 80% chance that the other one will have it as well. Because it's not one inherited gene, it's just like a cluster of genes. Um, but you've got the situation where you've got one with it and one without it. And interestingly, both of them turned out quite antisocial. Both of them were violent, both of them offended. You could argue that maybe Bonnie was a bit more violent because he actually got done for murder, whereas Reggie didn't. Did I get that correct? Or, or did they both get done for the murder of their associate? Both of them. But then Reg, uh, Ronnie got an extra murder on top of that. Mm. So you can see that they were both destined to be antisocial because they're genetically ident identical. Then you add in a layer of paranoid schizophrenia and he becomes slightly more violent. So, yeah. Any other high profile criminals you've done videos on? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, uh, one that really stands out in my mind is Andrea Yates. Who's Andrea uh, Yates? So that's, it's, she's got big similarities to the other two um, women that I was mentioning earlier. So Andrea Yates is a nurse who in 2001 in Houston, she drowned and killed her five, her own five children. Oh, in Houston? In Houston, yeah. Oh, and what was your analysis of her? So uh, there's a couple of interesting aspects um, of this case. So I think that she had this postnatal psychosis that I was talking about. So she had five kids and after each one, she would get unwell. And during one of the hospital treatments, she was discharged early from hospital because the insurance companies wouldn't pay for a whole stay. So she was slightly better than when she first came in but she was still not eating, not drinking, and they still discharged her because they refused to pay for her. Uh, and then months after that is when the killings happened. And she methodically drowned all of her, uh, in, in, of her children individually. Uh, and the oldest one was a seven-year-old boy and he figured out what was going on. So he tried to run away and she chased him and dragged him back and killed him. Oh my God. Yeah. And I've got an eight-year-old son, so particularly kind of... <sighs> rings rings to me Did, rings um, to me emotionally was she hearing voices and stuff yeah so uh it's immediately afterwards she phones her husband who's working so it's actually very similar to the other case talking about his her husband's working working at nasa phones him and tells tells him what he's done then she calls the police herself mm. uh, and she was convinced that there, there was something wrong with the children they've been marked by satan and she was seeing like uh, demonic images even in prison she was seeing like cartoon characters like devil cartoon characters in the walls um she was hearing a voice. She was hearing a voice that was telling her to go and grab a weapon. Then she committed her offence. And actually not too dissimilar to, uh, to the Yorkshire Ripper, what actually happened was that even though she was clearly psychotic, um, the jury were swayed to, to send her down for murder. So she actually started with a murder charge in prison. And that was very heavily influenced by the evidence of a forensic psychiatrist like myself called Dr. Dietz. And Dr. Dietz was i think fair to say a little bit dodgy so uh for a start he'd not he wasn't an expert in postnatal psychosis i think you could argue because it's quite a rare disorder that you don't have to be an expert to give evidence in that one specific illness if you understand psychosis in general so i would feel comfortable 
giving evidence in postnatal psychosis, even though I've only seen a few cases, because I understand I've seen hundreds of cases of psychosis. Uh, but he'd not practiced, he'd been doing his private medical legal work, but he'd not seen a patient in 20 years. So that's a little bit dodgy, right? <laughs> you can't really say that you've, you've kept your psychiatric skills up to date and sharp if you've not done that. Plus he was quite, um, he worked in high profile shows like Law and Order. Mm. So he actually insinuated during the trial that there was an episode of Law and Order on shortly before where somebody, uh, a mother killed the children and tried to get away with the defense of not guilty of reason by reason of insanity. And it turned out later after the trial that that was just bullshit. There was no such episode. So years later, she had a retrial. And during the retrial, she was eventually found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent, sent to a psychiatric hospital, which where I believe she's in uh, to this day. So she's still in hospital yeah. to this day. That was 20 years yeah. ago. But that really sort of struck me again, obviously because of the tragic nature of what she did, but also because it's just so similar to cases that I've seen personally. What was her name again? So I can Google that uh, one. Andrea Yates. Andrea Yates. And that was 2001, did you yeah. say? Yeah. Oh yeah, I was in America then. So it, it was probably on the news out there. Okay, so um, mental Ill, the mentally ill then, the biggest house of the mentally ill is the prison system in America. Is that the same for the UK? Uh, no, no. I think there are more people uh, in psychiatric hospitals who are severely mentally ill. I suppose it depends how you define mentally ill. Yeah. Like around half of prisoners have some sort of mental illness, but that would be, the majority of those would be anxiety or depression. So I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, detract from mm. those mental illnesses, but I'm talking about, you know, need hospital, kind of that level of illness. Yeah. There, there are more in psychiatric hospitals, definitely. So let's just take a break from all the cases a second, just go over some of the terminology. Sure. I think people need a break after hearing all those stories. Um, so you, you meant earlier on, you said paranoid schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. What is a paranoid schizophrenic? So schizophrenia is a, uh, is a mental illness that affects about 1% of the population. Uh, I think it's very slightly overrepresented over in males just by a little bit. And it's periods of psychosis. So psychosis is where you step out of reality. The two most common symptoms of psychosis are hallucinations and delusions. So hallucinations are seeing or hearing things that don't exist. Contrary to popular belief, most people with schizophrenia hear voices. It's actually quite rare for them to have visual hallucinations. They mostly hear voices. Yeah, yeah. So hearing things is far more common than seeing things, despite what you might see on TV programs, etc. Uh, which, by the way, is a way that you can spot when a defendant's lying, but that's a different topic. Uh, and they suffer delusions. So delusions are false, fixed beliefs that will not change um, even if there's evidence to the contrary. So typical delusions are paranoid delusions, which is exactly what you get in paranoid schizophrenia. So of cases that I see, by far the common types tend to be people are watching me, people are following me, either people that the, that the defendant knows or that are complete random strangers, people want to kill me, um, people are poisoning my food. I've seen several prisoners who will only eat packaged food because they, they believe for no discernible reason they believe that their food's being poisoned, um, people that they're dying. And then you get other types of delusions like grandiose delusions where people believe they can read minds or have superpowers or can fly and yeah. So how many schizophrenics are of the paranoid type? Um, good question. I think I think the majority of people with schizophrenia have paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah, so I think well over a half generally tend to be. That's how it presents, yeah. Over half are paranoid schizophrenics. Yeah. And out of all of the violent um, crime that occurs from the mentally ill, what proportion of that comes from paranoid schizophrenics? So I, I should say, because I, I don't, I wouldn't want to um, 
add to the stigma against mental illness. So I, I would uh, really sort of like to highlight the vast majority of people who have mental illness are not violent. Yeah. It just happens to be that I work in, in the field that's exactly that overlap. Um, so in terms of serious, serious crimes like murder, I think quite a high proportion of them are done by people with schizophrenia. I think something like 10%. 10% of murders are done by schizophrenics. I think so, yeah. And what are the warning signs people could look for then? Like just hearing people say strange things. Well, the problem is, is that because the vast majority of people with mental illnesses like schizophrenia are not violent, it's it's one thing to identify the mental illness, but it's a whole different ball game to actually identify the risks, which is where you need a specialist like a forensic psychiatrist. But to answer your question, so um, generally people with schizophrenia have those symptoms I was talking about. So they, they're hearing voices or they're transfixed on, on ideas or thoughts or conspirational beliefs that are clearly not true. But they also tend to have quite significant cognitive decline. So you can be quite paranoid, but not have schizophrenia somebody with schizophrenia generally there are exceptions but generally they struggle with work with relationships they tend to need to go in and out of hospital so their ability to function uh, massively decreases which is called social drift so they tend to drift towards joblessness homelessness drug use yeah have you watched the white house farm murders on netflix no no i've heard okay. of it so but I know, I know. Um, what was the name of the Jeremy Bamber? Yeah, I know a little bit about him though. Yeah. Oh, do you? What do you know about Bamber? Uh, so the reason I know this is because I was a guest on another podcast about the murders, even though I've not seen any documentaries on it. So I know that he tried to set up his schizophrenic sister uh, as as committing these murders. So he, he murdered his entire family, I believe. He was I convicted it was, of it. Yeah, right. we're trying to like research this more. Okay, we, there's um. There's a guy we're working with who believes he's innocent. Okay. I've heard that there's yeah. a movement of people that believe that, actually. So we're trying to get to the bottom of it. It's right. tricky, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What are you? What kind of things have you found out? Um, not much yet, but we're going to be meeting with the team. Uh, and and the um, we're going to be uh, doing some podcasts with the team that represent him. So we're hoping to find out a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, watching that show on Netflix... You could see how the women who provided the information that convicted him had a lot to gain. Right. The cousin, basically, everything he was going to inherit went to her. Okay. And his girlfriend had already sold a uh, story to the News of the World for tens of thousands. Right. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. So there's a lot to it. Um, even though that show made him look guilty, from my experience in the justice system, there was a lot of red flags. Yeah. Yeah, because I wrote a book on making a murderer about the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey cases on, on yeah. making a murderer. Yeah. And uh, there's 10 things that always reoccur when there's no physical evidence as to how they convict people. Yeah. And I saw a lot of that reoccurring in, in his case. So okay. definitely something we want to we look at uh, much stronger. Yeah. Okay. Again, if you need yeah. any sound bites, I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll do my yeah, research. Yeah. yeah. I'll find out about his case. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. All right, so um, is there a, a mental disorder then that is more prolific in murder than schizophrenia? Yes, so personality disorder. Yeah. Personality disorders. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's, this is often misunderstood. So there's a difference between a mental illness and a personality disorder. Ah. So a mental illness is, uh, it could be seen as a baseline change of what you usually are because yeah. you've got symptoms. 
So in, if it's psychosis, then those symptoms are, as I said before, hearing voices, seeing things. If it's, for example, mania, then those symptoms are, you know, being speeded up, having all this energy, flight of ideas. If it's something like depression, as I'm sure you know, low mood, lack of energy, etc. Whereas a personality disorder is entrenched in you. So if you've got a personality disorder, it means that your character traits are flawed by definition. So it's part of you. It's, it's related to, you know, your upbringing, your experiences, et cetera. Um, so I should say I've made videos on personality disorders and I've got quite a bit of, uh, of uh, backlash because they are quite a contentious diagnosis. Mm. And some people who are diagnosed feel that they're labeled as troublemakers. And I can understand where that comes from because I've certainly seen in my career uh, doctors and nurses who say that's just PD, that's just personality disorder, which I take to mean that they're just causing trouble for the sake of it. They, they know what they're doing. They're not hearing voices, for example. Um, so I agree with that it is a contentious diagnosis, but the definition of a personality disorder is that your, your personality traits are flawed. So when it comes to violence, by far the most common personality disorder is antisocial personality disorder. So people that have this disorder tend to not care about the rights of other people. They treat people with like this callous indifference. They don't care about them. They don't care about following the law. They don't really learn from their mistakes. So even if they get punished, even if they get sent to prison, they never really change. I'm sure through your experience in prison, you must have met a lot of people <laughs> with this kind of disorder. Would you say that they are also overlap with psychopaths? Yes, absolutely. So psychopaths are, psychopaths is like uh, antisocial personality disorder plus. Ah, so you've got all of those traits plus plus you're uh, really charming and you're really manipulative right and another difference is this is that people with antisocial personality sort of have they can have empathy towards mm. some people so you can go out in the streets be a thug be a drug dealer beat people up but yeah. you, you still love your mum you still yeah. love your family yeah yeah whereas a true psychopath of which i've worked with a few Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um, have no empathy for anybody. Mm. So they can still be in a, in a marriage. They might have kids, but they're deep down to their core. They only really care about themselves. And they only really see other people as an opportunity mm. to, uh, to manipulate, to get something from. So they might have friends, but they don't really value their friendship. Mm. so for example i've seen psychopaths on wards so i've worked in personality wards when i did um did my training and i've seen a couple of psychopaths and they would ha like like a lot of wards there was there was like alliances and cliques i wouldn't call them gangs but mm. there were there were men that hung out together and, and had friendships and a true psychopath would drop their friend like that if it if it suited them mm. so if a friend was had provided a positive urine drug test for example and the psychopath doesn't want to leave, lose his leave, he'll like disassociate himself with that. Or if a friend's been accused of doing something, then a, a true psychopath will just, just cut ties immediately, would have no qualms. Mm -hmm. What's the most dangerous psychopathic case you've encountered? Uh, that I've encountered myself? Yeah. Um, so I think probably the murder cases that I talked about before, particularly the man who had killed uh, a few times before, uh, I don't think he ever got a formal diagnosis of psych of being a psychopath, but he clearly used, I mean, the three murders aside, he used people and he used women to get what he wanted. You know, he would form 
these relationships, I think, to set himself up in the community. Mm. And he didn't seem to learn from his mistakes, which is a very typical from a psychopath. So that's yeah. probably one of the one of the main ones. What was this case you were interested in, James? The Rachel Nickel murder. Rachel? Nickel. Oh, Nickel. What's that case? So the reason that I, I know about this case, the reason I've studied this case, because we were taught about it during our training, um, because it kind of, in my view, highlights how non-scientific and non-reliable criminal profiling is. Mm. And as a forensic psychiatrist, uh, it's quite a common mis misconception. They think that's what we do. It's not. We've got nothing to do with solving crimes at all. So the case was in 1992, there was a, a young lady called Rachel Nickel. She was only 23. She was a young model. She, I think she had a three-year-old son at the time. And in Wimbledon Common, she was completely randomly and senselessly attacked by a stranger who stabbed her, I think, over 50 or 60 times, killed her in front of her son. Hmm. And what had happened was the police had some suspects and they they um, drafted in this very renowned forensic psychologist, arguably probably uh, one of the most famous in the country. And he set up this criminal profile of what he thought the perpetrator would uh, would be like demographically. And the police had a number of suspects, including the person that actually carried it out, who I'll come back to later, and a completely innocent man called Colin Stagg. And they were convinced that Colin Stagg was uh, was the perpetrator because of this criminal profile that was built up. So they actually set up like a honey trap, like a sting operation, where they got a, an attractive female undercover cop to start a romantic relationship with Colin Stagg and try and coax out a confession about the killing of Rachel McKell. And alarmingly, he didn't even confess to that. So I think there's transcripts of the actual conversations. And he basically said, look, I know you want me to say that I killed this woman, but I didn't kill her. I don't know what to tell you. I didn't do it. Despite that, the police still arrested him and he's still put on remand for mm. eight months. Then he had a trial at the Old Bailey and it was thrown out immediately. And the police were heavily criticized, as was the psychologist. And then years later down the line, because DNA technology had caught up, they discovered that it was the, the real perpetrator was a man called Robert Napper. And he was actually a patient at Broadmoor at the time. So he was he had paranoid schizophrenia. And he killed another random woman whose name was Samantha Bissett. Uh, and they, they linked the DNA to him. But so for me, the most sort of shocking part is that had they, if it wasn't for this criminal profile, because the police actually had him as a suspect at one point, if it wasn't for this uh, criminal profile, they might have got the right person. They might have prevented this other senseless murder. So the art of criminal profiling then, where did that originate? Um, so I think it originated... In, in America, actually. So I think, I think it was connected to the FBI from decades ago, from like the 60s. But I think, that me personally, the, the reason I don't believe in it is, is, first of all, there's no scientific studies to prove that it actually is this works. going back to Mindhunter and all yeah, that stuff? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number one. And number two, it, it makes certain assumptions, and the assumptions are that different people act the same way and that a criminal carries out his offences in the same way. And I just don't think that's true even in pe people that I've assessed. And again, the vast majority are not murders, but in people that I've assessed, their, their crimes or their MOs are sort of random, they're impulsive, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily follow a pattern. I think some people probably do follow a pattern, but you can't assume that and you can't, you can't uh, use it to narrow down suspects in my view. As I think is reflected in the Rachel Nickel case, it can actually be quite damaging, I think. In the Rachel Nickel case, this suspect then that was innocent what had put him on the radar of the criminal profiler? Did he have a history of anything? Um, 
I'm not entirely sure. I know he was a, I know he was seen as a bit of an odd man. I know that. I know he was a bit of a loner. Um, and I think he used to wander around that area. I don't think he had a serious history of violent crimes as far as I'm aware. No. Just like a Boo Radley situation. To kill a mockingbird. All right, so you mentioned then personality disorders. So does that mean like borderline personality disorder? Is yep. that one of them? Yeah, yeah. So what does that even mean? Okay, so when it comes to personality disorders that are related to violence and offending, as I said before, number one, the by far the most common one I see is antisocial personality disorder. Antisocial. Number two is borderline. Oh, is it? So borderline is also known as emotionally unstable personality disorder. And people who suffer from this tend to have uh, of mood swings, big mood swings. They're never fully happy with themselves. They're never fully happy with their identity. So they often, you know, change their circle of friends or change their image just because they're never really happy with who they are in the core. They uh, often self-harm and they often take drugs and they have quite explosive relationships. So the difference between somebody antisocial who offends versus somebody with borderline who offends, in my experience, is this, is that antisocial people see offending as a lifestyle. So violence is how they uh, earn their living, basically. Whereas generally people with borderline tend to not want to be habitual offenders, but they can't contain their emotions. So they get into an argument with their with their boyfriends or their girlfriends or their parents, and they just explode in this rage and they regret it afterwards. Whereas somebody with antisocial personality, it's what they do. They regret getting caught, <laughs> but they don't regret their behavior. Uh, but I should also say that there's a lot of people with borderline who who, who live fulfilled lives and are able to contain their symptoms their behaviors uh, it's not i'm not saying that everybody with this disorder is aggressive or violent it's just the people that i tend to see who's the more manip manipulative psychopaths antisocial borderline psychopaths psychopaths yeah, yeah. do you by definition you have to be manipulative to be a psychopath I see. you don't have to have that trait for the other two do you have a case of a borderline that gave you some particular challenges um yes yes absolutely yeah so i remember there was one young man who so this was when i was working as a consultant in a secure ward so this is different from one-off assessments this is when i uh, had responsibility for rehabilitating the patients and there was one young man and um he was he was actually quite charming he was quite funny when he wanted to be but he could also be quite nasty uh, when he got angry and he was an absolute nightmare to discharge just really difficult to discharge because he just wouldn't stick with the rules. So every time he, he would behave himself on the ward to get leave. And then when he got leave, he would go out and he would uh, come back on time for weeks in a row until it got uh, escalated to unescorted leave. And then he would go out and drink, come back drunk, be a bit aggressive, a bit arsy. He actually um, physically put hands on me on one occasion, actually. So he would push me into a wardrobe Dang. once yeah, when I was telling him off. Do you like have a <laughs> protocol when something like that happens? Yeah, um, I didn't follow it. You should pull your <laughs> alarm and you should. And so there's an emergency nursing team that come in and, and if necessary, restrain and medicate yeah. and put them into seclusion. But um, I just didn't think it was that necessary. And, and I, I didn't, maybe, maybe it's the wrong call, but I didn't feel that threatened and that kind of calmed him down. And I was also just quite frustrated because his, his admission was lasting so long because he kept breaking the boundaries that mm. I just didn't want another mark to go against his name, which would put him in hospital, put him back for another few months. How did you calm him down? Um, I, th I think he, he, so, so basically what happened was, uh, I, I, and this is quite typical for some people with borderline. I think he was pushing the boundaries by coming back a little bit late, drinking a little bit, but not enough, you know, enough to, to, to register on the breathalyzer. He didn't seem drunk. And I, I gave him a couple of passes because I didn't want to stop his leave because his leave had been stopped so many times in the past 
I didn't want to just start from square one and you know extend his extend his admission. Yeah. So I gave him a couple of passes, and I think he was just sort of pushing it to see how far he can get. And then I had to stop his leave because there was just there was just he was doing it too often, and he came back properly drunk once, um, and then he refused to come out of his room. So I saw him in his room, which is actually pretty stupid on my part, but um, I shouldn't have done that. But I was just busy <laughs> and uh, so I saw him in his in the room as opposed to finding a separate room and finding nurses that are available um, and I think after he pushed me he kind of you could tell in his face that he was like, a bit shocked at what he'd done um, and so I just sort of talked him down and just said you know the weird thing is is being in that situation and I wouldn't say it happens very often but it certainly happened a handful of times in, in my career is that I can't argue back or fight back or say what I'm really thinking because I'm the professional so I can't somebody yells at me or swears at me or gives me racist abuse i can't but you're i can't to, really i can't really stand up self-defense yeah 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 absolutely you can self-defend you yeah. can self-defend but i can't escalate an argument yeah so i couldn't say what i was really thinking which would be full of expletives i just kind of said look i think we, we can both tell that you're getting a bit too agitated and we're not going to get any further here so i'm going to leave now and he, he let me leave mm. um yeah but so i'll tell you what's interesting about his case was that finally when when we finally so he's from the milton Keynes area and when we finally discharged him uh, he has, we've kept finding these hostels for him to go to. And every time there was some sort of problem, he would, uh, he would either didn't like the hostel or he wouldn't stick with the boundaries when he had like leave testing. And then on one week, uh, one final time we found a hostel for him to be discharged to. And he went away on a weekend and the community mental health team based in Milton Keynes wouldn't work with him because he was just too much of a handful. So as an alternative, he had to, um, he had to go to, uh, no, sorry, I've said this wrong. It wasn't a hostel. He, he was going to go and stay with his mother because no hostels would take him. Sorry, I got that mixed up. Had to stay with his mother because no hostels would take him. But there was a community center that was nearby. So the, the, the plan was, it wasn't a perfect plan, but the plan was stay with your mother and you have to go, to these, go, go into this community center every day initially, five days a week, have therapy. If you can show that you're stable and you're behaving yourself, then that will decrease over time. You get more freedom. So he reluctantly agreed because it's the only way he could leave hospital. So we had him on this test weekend where he had to go up, stay with his mother and go to this thing twice, go, go on the Saturday and Sunday. He turned up, his mother disappeared off the scene. He had like a two day party, <laughs> basically took loads of drugs. He didn't turn up to, he turned up to the first session stinking of booze and then left after like half an hour. He's supposed to be there all day. Didn't even turn up to the second session. And then when the nurse from our ward drove up to collect him on the Monday morning, there was like people um, he's obviously had like a two-day party there's like drugs on the floor condoms on the floor people passed out uh yeah. how old was he he was not that old in mid-20s i think yeah. and what what crime had he done in the first place uh so in the first place he'd set a fire with his mother in the house oh. i think he was psychotic to be fair i don't think he intended to kill her i think it, and he i think he intended to kill himself so he set a fire but he'd locked the door and he had the key on him so his mother couldn't get out so uh the neighbors had to put a brick through the window so obviously it's not ideal to discharge this person to his mother's house, given the history, but we literally had no other options because he'd burnt his bridges with every single person. Mm. So to go back to the original point, that's quite typical for some people with borderline. They're just explosive relationships. You know, they're just quite, they can be quite very challenging in their behavior. Yeah. Is there something in the DSM called intermittent explosive disorder? Uh, I don't think it's in the DSM as far as I know, okay. no. But it is, it is a, it is a, contentious psychiatric diagnosis in that some people don't don't really think it exists do you think that the dsm it's ever expanding to incorporate more labeling and medication to an extent yeah 
I think pharmaceutical industries. Yeah. So I think, so I use the ICD 10 more often than DSM because generally it's used more in the UK. Uh, but I know a bit about DSM. I think the problem is, is isn't the way that things are categorized. I think it's the way that it's used. Mm. So as a psychiatrist, I'd be the first to admit that all psychiatric constructs are man-made. They're all made up. Mm. Yeah. It's not like you've got a broken bone and you've got, you can take an X-ray and you can say this bone is broken. All psychiatric diagnoses are a group and clusters of symptoms that you put together or that somebody puts together and we all agree that this is, you, you use these to categorize things. So I think that if you expand it and you get more symptoms, the problem is, is that you are path pathologizing uh, experiences, human experiences, but it's what you do with them. So if you're over-diagnosing and you're treating patients unnecessarily, then I think that's absolutely wrong and that should be strayed away from. But if, if you're just using it as terminology to explain a mental illness, then I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. So to put it another way, you shouldn't just treat somebody because they match a list in a book. You should treat somebody because their mental illness is impacting on their lives and they can't manage without therapy or medication. So to me, if you do that, then it's kind of irrelevant which category of the ICD-10 or DSM that you're doing. And if you treat the patient holistically, that's more important. It just seems like it's gone to an extreme in America. Yeah. Um, all right, so we're going down the list of categories that commit the most violent crimes. We've got psychopaths, antisocial, borderline. What's next? <laughs> um, I think most of the patients that I've, I've seen would fit into those categories. I suppose another one that we've not talked about is uh, mania. So mania. Yeah. So bipolar, like bipolar. affective. Yeah, exactly. So bipolar affective disorder, uh, as you may know, is a, a constant flux between one of three states. So sufferers are either depressed, euthymic, which means they're in normal mood, or manic, which is mania. So mm. it's kind of the opposite of depressed. So you're full of energy, got a flight of ideas, constantly thinking of other ideas, um, don't feel tired, don't feel you need to sleep, constantly eating, constantly on the go. Uh, so that is definitely associated with with offending. So if somebody's in a manic state, they can be completely disinhibited and they don't really know what they're doing. Have you got any cases you could tell us about mania? <clears throat> um, yeah, one that jumps to my mind would be uh, a man who was actually on the ward at the same time as the young man that I was telling you about the borderline. Uh, so he was in his 50s, I believe, and he's like an ex-rocker, really sort of big, burly man, full of tattoos, leather jackets, he used to drink with the kinks, apparently. That's what he told us. Um, and he, so he, he was actually a very sad case because he never really got better. Uh, and I felt a degree of guilt, actually, because I, I was his consultant for two years mm. and, and I plied him with uh, medication. It never got him better. Um, but his index offence, so his offence that got him into forensic services in the first place was that he'd been on a uh, three or four day binge, uh, just drinking loads. I think he was manic. That's why he didn't feel the need to, to stop. He wasn't, as far as I know, using any stimulants. It's quite hard to drink for, for three or four days straight, I'm sure. You can do it with other things in your <laughs> system, but not with just booze. Um, and he just went to a random bar quite near where he grew up. So he knows the community, knows the barman, and he asked for a drink and the barman refused to serve him because he was just in a state. So he, he wrestled the barman, got behind the bar and started just chucking bottles um, of spirits just at, at people that were walking by and oh across God. the bar, trashed this bar. Then the police came to try and arrest him. And he, I think he even knew some of the policemen because it was actually quite a small community. Uh, and he started throwing bottles at the police cars as well. Oh, no. um, so he got arrested, went to prison, then went to a, a psychiatric unit, which is when I was in charge of his care. And he was 
just a handful. And the weird thing about this man was that on, he had good and bad days. And on good days, he was actually very uh, charming, really funny. He was still a bit manic, still a bit disinhibited. He would, uh, he called me Mowgli. That was his name for me, which is slightly racist, but it's also quite funny. Uh, and on a good day, he would dance with the nurses and he'd, he'd sing, sing and, and sort of be quite, quite a, pl a pleasure to be around. Um, but on a bad day, he was really angry, really irritable. He was completely fixed on me because he not completely untruthfully believed that I was, uh, you know, making his health worse with these medications because I was plying him with meds because I wanted to get him better so he could leave hospital. Um, and so on some days he would like make a beeline for me, run towards me. He never actually put his hands on me, but he would, he would quite frequently like run up to my face and scream at me. I remember there's about one week in the summer where he, um, he knew what time I'd come to work and he would wait by the window. And every time I was walking from the front, from the front security gates to my office, he would just like swear and shout at me, which is really embarrassing because all the staff can hear. Um, and usually with somebody like that, you stop, you put them in seclusion if they're acutely uh, really dangerous. And when they're a bit better, you stop their leave and you use leave or you use discharge as like a carrot for them to aim. So that's how you convince people to engage in therapy and take meds. But this guy didn't ever want to leave hospital. Well, first of all, he's too, too unwell to ever leave. But secondly, I, I think deep down, even though he never admitted this to me, I think he knew that he would not cope in the outside world because you can't live if that's your behavior, you can't, you, you, you can't function, you know, as well as being a danger to other people, you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, you're going to get, you know, thumped. Um, so he didn't care about leave and he didn't care about being discharged. So he was just really difficult to treat. I never really made any headway uh, with him. Yeah. One of my regrets from my career. One of my favorite documentaries, and it's very harrowing, but it's gripping is about the extreme behavior of mental illness. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's where two women run out into the motorway. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's it called? Madness in the Fast Lane. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. That does sound familiar, though. Yeah, I've, I've watched it a few times. Yeah, they? they had Folly Adder, didn't they? So that's they're the... getting run over by trucks. Yeah, and they jump up with superhuman strength, and they would have been anyone else would have been dead. Yeah. So and what is it? Did... Puff, puff of madness. Yeah, 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 yeah. Folly uh, Adder. So Folly, uh, I think, I think they had. Have you seen that one, James? Madness in the Fast Lane. What did you think of that? you seen it, Joe? They're literally like these Scandinavian women. The police are called and they run out into the motorway and like into trucks and stuff. Yeah. And they're like down. The police come and they jump up like with superhuman strength and attack the police and run off. Yeah. And that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning of what happens. It gets crazier and crazier all the way through it. So am I right? It's been a while since I've, since I've uh, heard about this case, but am I right in thinking, Sean, that the what one of the women was very seriously injured and the second one uh, they were twins right yeah something yeah, yeah. Twins. Um, and the second one wasn't that badly injured but she kind of s charmed the policeman into releasing her yeah and then she went to st she stabbed uh it was a murder someone yeah. yeah 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 it's fascinating but there's all different at the end of that program i think they had interviewed different um doctors and stuff and different theories so you're what you said was one of them, the Puff of Madness. Uh, no, so m mine is folly. It's not quite the same. It's, okay. it's so Puff of Madness uh, is a different thing that's also got another potentially French name, but I can't remember what it is. Right. Folly Adder is uh, Madness Shared by Two. Madness Shared by yeah. Two. Could yeah, you yeah, explain yeah. how yeah, the hell that yeah, happens yeah. I, can, I, can, I can even give you a case example for this one, actually. <laughs> oh, good. So, I, I made a video about this on my YouTube channel recently. Yeah. So it is extremely rare. I've only ever seen one, uh, one of these cases in my career, and most psychiatrists wouldn't see this. Mm -hmm. But it's when... Uh, a psychosis, usually a delusion, is shared between two people. 
And when it does happen, it tends to be people who are very close, like you know, sisters in this case, or um, father and son in the case that I'll, I'll tell you about shortly. Uh, and they're quite isolated and they tend to be withdrawn from the rest of society. So they just kind of feed into each other's bizarre delusions until they're both mentally ill. So the case that I saw was uh, fascinating. So it was about this man, this quite sort of tubby, middle-aged, maybe 40s, early 40s man. And he was just pretty crazy. So he'd had some sort of surgery on his turbinates. So he had some breathing problems. Surgery on his what? On his turbinates, on the like the inside inside layers of his nose. I haven't even heard right. that word so, before. Uh, turbinates. Turbinates. Yeah, That's yeah. a layer of your nose, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like this bony layer of the inside of your nose. Okay. Yeah. So he had some breathing problems. And it's not it's not that uh bigger physical illness. You know, people get it treated all the time. It's not like, you know, particularly life threatening or anything. Does it lead to snoring? Uh, I think if you've got problems with it, that's one of the reasons I think that you can have um, surgery on your turbinates is because you because you can't stop snoring. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so he had this operation, and he was convinced that his symptoms remained, and he he was convinced that these that doctors in general had this conspiracy against him. So he basically started this campaign of hate over many many years, and he started printing out. He would go to these doctors' appointments, and he would use his his phone to covertly record doctors. And they'd make like clips about them, put them out on YouTube. He'd make like little posters and leaflets about these doctors and start handing them out on the streets, including to where the doctors lived. So he'd go and like post these things. <gasps> Doctoring. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so he was kind of, I, I don't think he physically hurt anybody, but he was clearly, you know, like intentionally intimidating and threatening people. So when I saw him was again for a one-off assessment and his dad basically shared his beliefs. So they had this, they had in their mind, they'd created, I think it was called the British Unicorn Party. And there's a website, so I checked out the website. It doesn't exist anymore, by the way. I've recently Googled it. <laughs> and they would believe that they were a political party that were against the criminal justice system, against doctors and against judges. And their manifestos were things like, um, all psychiatrists should be sectioned. Anybody who kills a judge uh, should get a, like, should not have to go to prison. All of this stuff. Jesus. So the reason that it really stands out in my mind was this: was when I went to assess them, the solicitor phones me up on the on the on the way to the assessment to warn me that he's a bit of a handful, and that almost never really happens. The solicitor, I, I barely speak to them. They send me instructions through email. Were you assessing both? No, no, no. I was there just to assess the son. I didn't even know the dad was going to be there yeah. <laughs> until I got there. Yeah. And then right off the bat, they were really passively aggressive. They didn't, you know, physically touch me or anything, but. Um, the, the the dad kept calling me a psychobabblist and like while I was talking he would talk over me and he was just like this is all bullshit this is all psychobabble you don't exist psychiatrists don't exist so I was like okay I just need to get just answer my questions so I can write this fucking court report and, and bounce um, and uh <laughs> and then he, re he read the the son read out this manifesto um with all those b bizarre beliefs that i was telling you about and he basically said if you because because he knew i was seeing him for a court report and he said if you write a court report that puts me in prison or if the judge and he named the judge if she puts me in prison then i'm going to start a campaign against you guys as well and i'm going to make pictures and posters about you and i'm going to distribute all of this stuff and if you put me behind bars then i've got this army of people which frankly i don't think existed i think it was just like <laughs> his dad in front of a pc <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing I remember is his dad was wearing fingerless gloves. I don't know why, but I just really stuck with it. <laughs> so, so what ended up happening to them? So it's hard to take anybody seriously when they've got fingerless gloves. Um, so I was actually really worried. Like a part, It was ridiculous, and a part of me found it quite amusing. Yeah. But a part of me was also like, I've seen what they've done to these other doctors for years. I do not want 
back in my life. Um, so I basically, I phoned up the judge and that's the first time, any time I've ever done that in my career. And I said, look, I'm really worried. This is what they've said they're going to do to me and to you. Um, you know, uh, it's not up to me, but you might want to think about remanding the son and you might want to, as opposed to bail, or you might want to think about, you know, some sort of criminal charge against the father who's also making these threats. Uh, but the judge was a bit more level-headed. So in the end, she made these really clear bail conditions that he had to sign that if if anybody contacts me or her either them or an associate of them in any way then he's immediately going to jail uh, and it must have worked because i didn't hear from him again but wow. i was definitely checking checking my posts for the next couple of months and what's that condition called again uh foliada so i think he had so i think he had a delusional disorder which is similar to schizophrenia but you only have delusions and you don't have all the cognitive stuff that i was talking about before yeah. so you can actually function quite high you can hold down a job but you have one particular delusional system. So I think the son had that. And I think the father got fully adder, like just basically absorbed his delusions and sort and thought the same thing. So the two feed off each other then. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually one person has it first and then somebody else kind of uh, it spreads. Yeah. Yeah. Can it spread to like third and fourth person? Uh, I, I'm sure it, it's, it's theoretically possible. I've certainly not seen it. Although you could argue, I, I, I don't, I have not researched this enough because it's never really occurred to me, but you could argue maybe that some cults might have that because you have yeah. people that have clearly delusional beliefs and that spreads. So a puff of madness then, what does that mean? So a puff of madness is like an instant, it's like the um, the uh, psychiatric equivalent of spontaneous human combustion, I guess. So it's when somebody suddenly out of nowhere becomes psychotic for a very short period of time and then gets out of psychosis. With really no quickly. history. With no history, yeah. It's just, I've, not, I've not seen that in my career. But I've, I've heard about it and, and that documentary you're talking about. So I think yeah. they're only psychotic for days. Whereas yeah. usually it takes months and months to build up and it's, it takes months and months to, to uh, assuage as well. Any other esoteric classifications of mental illness that we haven't touched on? Um, uh, yes. So there is Capgras syndrome. What? Capgras syndrome. Capgras. Is yeah. that two words? Uh, no, it's one word. C-A-P-G-R-A-S. Capgras syndrome. Go on, what's that? So that is is a specific delusion. It's a delusion of misidentification. That is where you believe, you genuinely believe that somebody somebody that's close to you is not actually them. So say if you believe that your, I don't know, sister, for example, wasn't actually your sister, but was an imposter. And it's like a quite a fixed delusional belief. Uh, I don't think I've seen it in my career, but I've certainly heard of cases of, of people attacking family members and killing family members because they're convinced that it's not actually really that person. It's somebody else that looks exactly like them, but it's like a clone. There was um, a case in America of a dad, a postal worker, who um, was driving along and his two sons were in the back and he thought one of his sons was a demon and cut his son's head off. Right. But that would be classified as crystal meth psychosis, would it? Well, if he was taking crystal meth, yeah, then yeah. So that's absolutely. not a mental illness. Yeah. If you're yeah. under the effect of drugs, it's yeah. not a mental illness. Yeah. So basically, but do, you have, but do you have situations where they combine? Yeah. Uh, so basically, you can have so there's drug-induced psychosis, mm. which is where somebody with no known psychosis takes drugs and then all of a sudden becomes psychotic for a very short period of time. Then the drugs go out of the system and then they're back to normal. I've got an interesting case about Please. that if you'd like to hear yes. about it. I'll, I'll come back to that. And there's some people who who have a psychotic illness like schizophrenia, then they take drugs and that sh rockets them into a, a, a state of psychosis. But it tends to last longer than the two or three days when the drugs are in your system. And then you've got very occasional cases where you've got somebody with no mental health, um, no mental illness history, 
who become psychotic on drugs and then stay psychotic. So they flip into schizophrenia. And you can't really know for sure whether they would have eventually got schizophrenia or not. You don't really know. It's like something snaps in the mind, isn't it? Because, mm, yeah. you know, a lot of my friends did a variety of drugs. And some of them did, after a very short period of time on crystal meth, had delusions. Yeah. Which they still had years later when they were off the drugs. They still believed those things and the, the, the personality kind of shifted into a more paranoid. And did they believe them to the same kind of intensity? So was yeah. their behavior reflecting? Well, because they weren't actually on drugs, their behavior yeah. was more normal. Yeah. But they were set on that delusion that had formed. Do you want to give me an example, please? Yeah, so I had a friend. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Who's deceased now? Who, um... He's wild man. No, not wild man. But it was wild man and him who got on crystal meth together. And then my friend was a stockbroker. He ended up picking a computer up and throwing it at our boss and he got fired that day. <laughs> and then he lived in a, one of my properties and he showed up at my property with like a wand and he was going over the television with the wand and going over all the light fixtures with the wand. And he was saying that um, the house was definitely bugged and I was being followed and you know we were all going to end up in, in jail. Yeah. This was five years before we did all end up in jail. So he was correct <laughs> on that part of it. But the police were psychotic. He was a soothsayer. <laughs> the police weren't on to us yet because I read all the police records. They weren't at my house bugging the house. Um, so I woke up. He stayed the night at my property. I woke up. There was a bucket of water. His pager, because it was all pages back then, that's how we communicated, was in the bucket of water with a note. You know, you're all going to get arrested. You're getting followed. You're getting bugged. Uh, I, I'm I'm out of here. And I, I later learned he'd fled the state with this paranoia. And um, he did avoid getting arrested through these delusions. Um, but whenever I spoke to him in later years, you know, he, 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 was, he was still of the mindset that they were onto us at that point in time when yeah. they weren't. And was that after all the criminal charges had been dealt with after the prison time and everything? Was so um, he, he, he behaved in that way at my house in about 96, 97 when I was still a stockbroker. But my criminality was starting. Yeah. And then I rekindled uh, with him after my arrest, started to write to him and stuff and um, spoke to him um, after um, I got released, and um, but I've met a few people like that. That the, the, they've, they've, the, what's happened to them? Yeah, there was another one who came over with my friend Hammy, who's Wild Man's cousin, and I said to them, "Just help yourself to the drugs in the house." And I, I, I didn't warn them because in England you you take a, a gram of speed, don't you, and you eat it. So they were eating grams of crystal meth, right. and when I got home. Um, their eyes were like popping out of their heads and they'd drunk like dozens of beers as well and I went to bed and I woke up and they were having the exact same conversation when I woke up <laughs> and they were a bit stressed out so I was like let's go to LA you know I know some women out there we could chill out we'll go to the beach 
and um, in the car to LA, I noticed like they're like this all the way. Like, and then they're like, Sean, you need to pull over. There's people following us. Yeah. People following us. Anyway, this is a long story. It's in my book, Party Time, if you want to read it in the new edition, the, 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 the paranoid, the paranoid, how it, it built up in intensity where many things happened. And um, it culminated in us in this little pink hotel room on Sunset Boulevard. I get the same room as them because I want to keep my own on, but then they're like, you've set us up for a drug deal. That's why we're out here. We're all in the same room. So I got my own room. <laughs> Ended up getting a call from Hammy. You need to come down here. He's freaking out. He's looking out the windows. He said, there's helicopters come in. I've set them up for a drug deal. He grabs all his luggage, throws his luggage at me because his fingerprints is on it, opens his wallet, grabs his cash, throws all of his money at me because his fingerprints are on it. I've set up for a drug deal. Runs off down Sunset Boulevard like a wolf on acid, on acid like yeah. a wolf on acid. He's like, <laughs> and um, days later, he wakes up on a bench with all of his clothes pilfered by the homeless people. He's just got his trousers on and gets a cab to the um british embassy and apparently during his psychosis a japanese family of tourists had asked him to take pictures oh, of them no. <laughs> he knew that they were following him and bugging him with the there was a bug in the camera yeah, so he, yeah. he said yes got the Smash camera it. smashed the camera <laughs> on the floor and ran off um but i'm told to this day he he you know believes i, I really? flew him out there to set him up for a drug deal okay. so i've got multiple friends or associates and people from my life experience have gone yeah. They've took crystal meth for a very short period of time and something's gone in the brain. Yeah. But I've seen other people who've took it for a long period of time yeah. and they've, they've been fine after when they've got off it. Yeah. I, 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 I want, I've, there's not something that I've experienced that often in terms of the patients that I've seen. Yeah. I do wonder whether it's crystal meth, actually, because obviously you don't use that. You don't, it's not used as much in, in the, the UK, UK compared to America. Yeah. So I wonder if there's something about that as opposed to you know crack, for example. Yeah. So before I sidetrack then, what was the case you were going to give um, us? I just want to say you've got some interesting friends. <laughs> oh, my who goodness. Needs, who needs enemies? I should have brought you a, a copy of Party Sam with all that in it. <laughs> um, yeah. So the case that I saw... Capgrass is... Are we on? Capgrass. Uh, no, no. So Capgrass is... The, delusional misidentification oh we did but, that one yeah yeah but you're asking me about um drug-induced psychosis that's it yeah, yeah, yeah so uh, a few years ago i assessed a gay man from south africa and he had just been kicked out of his grandparents house at christmas time so he's walking around soho uh, looking for uh, sex basically and he met a random man on the street went back to this man's flat for sex and they did this uh, drug called a booty bump you heard of a booty bump? No, I've not heard of that. What is I'd, it? I'd, I'd a booty bump? A booty bump, yeah. E-booty bump? No, just booty bump. Booty bump. Booty bump, yeah. Has anyone heard <laughs> of that one? Booty bump? I, I, I don't think it's a new, it's a drug. It's just a method of taking drugs, I should say. Oh, okay. So booty what bump. You do is like you, a butt rocket. Uh, I on, imagine let, let, I'll let you explain. I'll let you explain. I, I've not heard the term. <laughs> Don't know anything about the uh, butt rockets. <laughs> but, uh, it does sound like it could be called a butt rocket. Yeah. If I had to think of a name for it, it probably would be a butt rocket. So what you do is you mix. Um, I think you mix either crystal meth or crack in yeah. water, and then you shoot it up your bum. Okay. And it goes through your sort of gets absorbed membranes. by that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he did one of these, and he'd never he, he used drugs sort of on and off for most of his life, mm. but he'd never done this before. And basically became completely psychotic in this man's house immediately. So that was, uh, Chris, did you say that was speed and crack? Uh, and it was crack? crystal meth and crack. Crystal meth and crack. Used, yeah. yeah. But I Googled it afterwards because I didn't know what he was talking about at the time. I didn't want to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like, no, thanks. Doesn't, doesn't sound like it's for me. Mm. Um, and <laughs> and uh, he started seeing and hearing dragons in this man's flat. Dragons? Yeah. Yeah. He started seeing and hearing dragons. So he started freaking out. And then this man who'd only just met like you know, less than an hour before kicked him out of his flat. 
Yeah. And then he goes round to another man's flat who's a drug dealer, mm. his drug dealer probably, uh, is in this man's flat and he starts freaking out, go, locks himself in the toilet, uh, takes off all his clothes and then he texts his cousin because she lives nearby saying this, you know, I'm, I'm freaking out here that the police are going to raid this flat. There's dragons all around me. Um, you need to help. Come come and get me. So he texted the address the address, and then his cousin went to, to go and collect him because she was obviously quite alarmed. And he was so psychotic that he forgot that he texted her. So when she shows out, she shows up out of the blue, he was convinced that she was somehow part of this conspiracy. It doesn't sound too much unlike uh, what your the state that your friends were in in that hotel. Yeah. So she was convinced that uh, he was convinced that she was part of some sort of police sting. Because otherwise, how would she know that he was there? Yeah. Uh, he was naked in 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 the bath in the stranger's flat. And she bent down to pick up uh, some clothes, and he had a pair of scissors on him that she didn't see. And she st and he stabbed his own cousin on the top of her head, uh, and then he stabbed himself through the cheek. Oh. So the injury to the cousin wasn't actually that bad. It was only like there was only a little bit of blood, just some glued. But he needed like twelve stitches Bloody on his cheek. Hell. Yeah, and and the, with the the, the the fascinating aspect of this is that he was fine. Like days later, he had to go to A and E, and the drugs were flushed out of his system. But when I saw him, he was just like completely normal. <laughs> so did, this massive scar. In his so face. did did um, the cousin press charges then? Uh, yeah, yeah, she did. Yeah. And what sentence did this person get? Uh, so he actually got uh, got got away with a mi relatively minor sentence. Actually, yeah. on the back of my evidence, it was a community order because it was his first serious offence. I think he'd done like some shoplifting as a kid. Yeah. Um, but basically, he his solicitors again wanted me to push for a charge of not guilty by reason yeah. of insanity because he was clearly psychotic and he's clearly yeah. um, fearing for his life, but. Crucially, because it's voluntary intoxication, you can't get a defense mm. of not guilty by reason of sanity if it's voluntary intoxication. Because mm. otherwise... You take responsibility yeah. for getting intoxicated. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he didn't get that defense, which means he would have been innocent in the eyes of the law, but he got off with a community. I'll just give you one more part of the um, the story that I just told about the guy who threw the luggage because it just came to me there, yeah. which um, is one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so prior to him throwing his luggage and his money at us, we're like trying to calm him down, me and Hammy. And then Hammy says, I need to take a piss. And the guy goes, why do you need to take a piss? Who are you going to go and signal to? Mm. And Hammy's like, I'm not going to go and signal to anyone. I've drink been drinking all these years. I need, I need to go and take a piss. The guy goes, well, I'm coming with you then. Yeah. He goes, what do you mean I'm coming with you? If you're not going in there and signaling to someone, yeah. saying you're taking a piss and signaling to someone without me, yeah. I'm coming with you. He's like, well, I've got to really got to take a piss. For fuck's sake. If you want to come with me, come with me. The guy leaped on his, jumped on his back like a monkey like this. <laughs> and Hammy's like, I'm fucking hell. I've really got to take a piss. So <laughs> Hammy goes, right, and uh, with this guy on his back to take a piss. <laughs> He's having a piss. The piss finishes. And uh, I'm just like mystified, you know. Yeah. And all I hear is, why did you shake your dick three times at the end of the piss? <laughs> Who are you signaling to? <laughs> but this is like this is like this ghetto pink hotel room with frosted windows in this dodgy neighborhood. And then these gutter punks like walk past the windows. And the guy's like, I knew it. And the gutter punks are looking. Like, I knew you were signaling to someone outside of this window. And that that then just set him over the edge. And that's what led to within a short period of time the money getting thrown at me and the luggage getting thrown at me.
Yeah. I think I can maybe top that. And this is, a, this is not a page do. that I've ever seen, but um, just a story that I heard, which is, you know, the Wu-Tang Clan yeah, rap group. Yeah. So one of their affiliate members, so it's not one of the core Wu, but yeah. one of their, you know, how they, they have these like Wu-Tang killer bees, one of their affiliate rappers uh, cut his own dick off when he was- uh, No! Yeah, yeah. No! Yeah. Oh! Yeah. Run it down. What led to it? What happened? What was um, the aftermath? Did so, he get a new dick? <laughs> Did he get a new dick? Yeah, he went to the dick store. Dick store. Um, Bob it, like Bob it. <laughs> so um, I've only like seen a YouTube video about this months ago, but yeah. from, from memory, he basically had a drug induced psychosis. So he went to some sort of party. He was, yeah. I think he was like drinking lean and possibly smoking. I imagine crystal meth and basically became really, really psychotic, had these thoughts about how he shouldn't father any more children because he's not like a, he's not a man enough to look after his own kids or something like that. And yeah, cut off a, I don't think he cut the whole thing off, but cut off a section of his dick. Yeah. Oh, a section. Yeah. Oh, we gotta get we gotta get to the bottom of this. What actually <laughs> happened? Was his dick was his was it did they lose that section permanently? Was it can he function now? <laughs> so um, I think I think you'll have to do your own research, but I think he had some sort People of operation. People are going to be Googling the hell out of this right yeah, now watching yeah, yeah. this. I think he had some sort of operation. So I think he... What's his name? Uh, I don't know. I'm sure you can Google it. Um, but I know he's, I know he's a, he's a Wu affiliate. Because people were um, so fascinated by the Lorraine Bobbitt story, weren't yeah, they? Because yeah. of a similar. Yeah. And that guy ended up, didn't he get an implant or something? Yeah, it, yeah, did yeah. it get sewn back on eventually? Uh, so I think Lorraine Bobbitt, what is it, John, John Wayne Bobbitt, is that right? Yeah. I think his yeah. dick, I think, did get sewn back on. Because it was, she it was ever threw the it, didn't she? Yeah, and yeah, they went and looked for it. Yeah. And they found it and put <laughs> it in a freeze box or something. And did he get it? Was it successfully reattached? I think it was, yeah. Well, then he became a porn star and got a yeah. dick enlargement or something. Yeah. Something like that happened. This is a fascinating case. It's like, I think it's on Netflix or YouTube. But I remember because I was in America when it happened. Yeah. And just. What state like, was it? Pardon? What state was it in America? That it I can't remember. I think it was in the 90s, though. It was near, it near, your, near where you were. I can't remember. There's so many states. But it was yeah. just such alarming news, you know. That, yeah, yeah. And then all the women were like, the women who had um, supported battered women were like rallying, saying it's about time some guy got his dick cut off, you know, because he was abusive towards... And I think there was... History, he did have a, a history of that. And... Um, I think in future relationships as well, alcoholism and and um, bad situations with women. Yeah. So maybe he had it coming. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's quite a unique unique way to get into the porn industry, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But I think he ended up trashing his, his life. Ended up pretty uh, depressed and in alcohol and stuff. From the documentary I watched recently, it wasn't very glamorous. What happened to him in the end? Yeah. Yeah. So don't go cutting anyone's dicks off. And um, <laughs> as a doctor, I second that. <laughs> <laughs> all right then so are there any like really um cases that you've not told us today that are in your book that perhaps we could go over that would be interesting for people to hear um i'm trying to think oh my goodness you've not talked about any cases of pedophilia uh actually yeah yeah i could i could Go on then. I what can happened? Tell you a little there? bit about that. So, um, actually, I've done a in my career. I've had I think three separate cases of men who uh, were vulnerable for one way or another. So, um, I think a couple of them had learning disabilities, and one of them had autism. And all three of them were completely separate cases, different time frames, but very sort of uh, quite similar in many ways. So, all of them been targeted by these like vigilante online groups. Um, I think one was a f a f an official group that was run by the police 
and the other two were just these these groups that random people set up and they try and sort of catfish men and so what they do catfish is, men are going after kids mm, yeah exactly predators. exactly yeah so what they do is they set up these fake accounts of being young females sort of usually 14 or 15 years old and they flirt with these men uh, and the men kind of uh, then arrange to meet them somewhere and then so of the cases from memory one was in a arranged to meet them in a service station another one was just in a, in a random pub but it's actually a group of blokes who kind of detain them probably rough them up a little bit and then call the police and the police get arrested. So I've seen three of these cases and I think a couple of them, it was clear to me that they were predators. Uh, and although I, I have to be very careful in the evidence I give, I never say whether I think somebody's guilty or not because um, first of all, it's unethical because I shouldn't really try and influence the jury, but also my evidence can be thrown out. So if I write really good detailed court report, putting all that time and effort, but then I, I make a comment about whether I think they're guilty or not, then the opposition barrister can can criticise my, my evidence and the entire report can be thrown out. So I, I literally can't. Um, but so if, I think for two of the cases, I felt that clearly they were they were predators and they were clearly going there for, for sex. Uh, and there was just, this, this, they had these really lame excuses. I think one said that, so uh, one of them, as well as this, so one of them said that his phone had been nicked by his mate and his mate was like sending these Facebook messages as a joke. It's not really very uh, plausible. And another one had also had some indecent images found on his hard drive. And I think he tried to convince the police that he'd bought the hard drive, um, like bought the laptop secondhand from somebody else and he didn't know the images were there. Again, not very plausible. But I have to say that one of the cases made me feel a bit uneasy because um, the man had autism and I think that he was quite sort of lonely and withdrawn. I think he, he'd never had like a relationship. He was talking to what he thought was a, gay, a boy who I think the boy said he was 15. He was a gamer. So they started talking through um, like the love of whatever online games that, that kids play nowadays. Um, and from what I read from the messages, this vigilante group were really trying to pull this man in. And so they started the sexual chat and they kept it going and they really tried to draw him in. And he, he said on several occasions, like, I, I don't think this is appropriate and I, I just want to be friends and blah, blah, blah. And basically got talked into meeting this boy. Now, uh, there's different ways to look at it. You could say that he still actually turned up. So potentially he is a sexual offender and that is true i don't think you can deny that but i felt a bit uncomfortable about it as well because i felt that there are i think he was criminally culpable i think he knew what he was doing and i think he knew it was wrong in fact the very fact that he the very fact that he tried to dissuade the meeting from happening in the first place indicates that he knew what's wrong so you can't argue that he's got you know a psychiatric defense because he knew what he was doing clearly but at the same time, I also think that there are extrinsic factors. So the fact that um, he's got autism and that he struggles with finding relationships, that he uh, has like you know problems um, finding intimacy and and understanding people's emotions. So I, I, I remember feeling quite uncomfortable about the whole thing. I felt like he was kind of you know potentially a criminal, but also potentially vulnerable. Because you can't be two things. You can be you can be somebody that does bad things, and you can actually have mental health issues and be vulnerable. So there was a degree well. of entrapment as well. Do you yeah, think? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, what about when forensic psychiatrists make mistakes? Are there any alarming situations where people get released and go on to do heinous things? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I just suddenly thought of another case. Actually, I'll tell you about after this. Um, so, there, um, with any psychiatrist's career, 
a non-forensic psychiatrist, the the worst or one of the worst things that can happen to you is that a patient commits suicide. So I've got a story about that, which I'll come to. Um, and that is almost inevitable statistically. I don't think it happens to every psychiatrist, but for the average psychiatrist, even a good psychiatrist, that's going to happen once or twice in your career because it's just a numbers game. If you treat hundreds, maybe a thousand patients over your entire career and they've all got suicide, not all, but some of them have suicidal tendencies, then even with your best treatment, even if you think they're going to be safe, some of them or a small number are going to go on to commit suicide. It happens. With forensic psychiatry, you've got that, you've got uh, suicidality amongst your patient cohort, but you've also got the potential for violence. So as we were talking before, uh, talking about before, you have to discharge patients eventually. You have to because the system gets clogged up. If you never discharge anybody, then number one, what's the point in having them in a hospital? You might as well put them in prison. And number two, it doesn't free up the space for the other new um, patients to come in. So all you've got is what's in front of you. You have to risk assess, as I said before, on their behavior, on their boundaries, whether they use their leave appropriately, whether they engage in psychotherapy, whether they take the medication. So that does happen. So every, uh, that I'm aware of at least three or four times a year, you'll, you, uh, you'll hear a case in the newspapers where a patient has, either, has been discharged either recently or within the last few months, uh, and they've gone on to commit serious uh, offenses, including murder. Um, I can tell you about a, case if you yes please do yeah just check my notes about the name um so yeah so in 2004 there was a man called john barrett who is quite well known within the forensic psychiatric system in that he'd um got a recurring mental illness so he'd, he'd committed various violent offenses had been sectioned rehabilitated released and he'd go through the cycle and what happened was that he was admitted in 2004 and he was given leave by a psychiatrist who had not seen him i think he'd only got there that day or maybe the day before and he was he was sort of really pressurizing the nurses to give him leave and he was being a bit of a handful was being quite aggressive and so she made what i think is fair to say an incorrect decision because she thought she knew him because she'd seen him so many times in the past she didn't think he was that dangerous she let him go on leave and then the very next day he randomly stabbed and killed uh, a banker who was riding past in on their bike this is somewhere in london yeah so i mean that arguably is <clears throat> is avoidable because you shouldn't be giving somebody leave obviously if you've not pr properly assessed them um what's interesting about that is the entire way that that you you're allowed to give leave has actually been uh, changed because of that so now you have to write these formal forms that get signed off by a consultant that says you know that you've assessed the patient etc cetera, etc cetera. um but in a broader sense that is a risk that i have to live with or that forensic psychiatrists have to live with that is statistically it's i wouldn't say it's inevitable but it's probable that one of your patients even if you're good at what you do will go on to commit quite serious violence because of the group and the risk of the group that we work with how does it feel to have that power in your hands over a person's life and the potential for that person who could get out and kill someone um how does it feel i don't think i've ever, ever thought about that <laughs> um i think that i think that every so when i was what i do now is mostly court work so it's not really that relevant now but when i was uh, an inpatient in a hospital i had complete say over aspects of their lives likely when they get discharged and i always thought that you had to give everyone a chance that you despite what they have done and some patients not all but some have done some quite horrific things you've got people that have killed family members you've got people that have committed sexual offenses sometimes against children as a doctor you have to separate yourself from that and you have to do give everyone the best chance of re being reintegrating into society 
So I've never, I've, I've tried my best not to judge people for what they've done in the past. I've tried to take that out of the situation and only look at their psychiatric health now and the risks. You won't be able to function, would you, if you couldn't do that? Absolutely. And in terms of how it feels that people might go out and reoffend, um, I, I, I've not. I, it's not really bothered me that much because I th the way the perspective I look at it at is this: is that me and my teams. It's not just me. It's the nurses and psychologists, etc. Have helped far more people uh, reintegrate into society and live a better life than when we got them when we got them out of prison in the first place onto our wards than the number that will go on to commit violence. So we don't stop everybody from reoffending, but I think the ones that we do stop, you're not only protecting them, but you're protecting potential future victims. So in the Arizona jail, there was a thing called Rule 11 status, whereby you're classified as mentally ill for court proceedings. And some prisoners chose to go down that route and fake mental illness. Yeah. So I had a cellmate who was like a pocket-sized Henry VIII-looking character called Troll, and... Um, he would like like walk around the day room with his pink boxer shorts on with skid marks in them on purpose. Yeah. And um, he'd say things like, yeah, you know, if the judge asked me to give him a BJ and he'd release me tomorrow, I'd, I'd give him a BJ and just be going around acting all crazy with his poo on his, on his, on his boxers. Um, if people want to read more about Troll, that's in Hard Time on Amazon. So what... What do you do when people come to you faking mental illness? How do you spot it? You know what, Sean? It's actually much easier than you think. Is it? Yeah, it's actually very easy. Is it? Uh, yeah. So I'll tell you why. Because the first thing that I do before I see a case for yeah. a medical legal assistant uh, assessment, the first thing I do is I look at their background history, Yeah. get all their medical notes, get the psychiatric records. It's not impossible for somebody to become psychotic the first time they offend, just mm -hmm. like that young woman I told you about right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's very unlikely. The vast majority of people have a history of psychosis. They become psychotic slowly over time. So if they're walking around with, with skid stains and offering, offering to give judges blowjobs, <laughs> but I can tell from their records, from their GP records, that they've been absolutely fine. Yeah. The GP saw them about their blood pressure two weeks earlier and they, you know, or a month earlier, and they're absolutely fine. Yeah. Then my, my bullshit radar is on like <laughs> high alert. So that's one thing. The other thing is that I get objective evidence from where I can about them now. So if they're in a hospital, I speak to the nurses. If they're in prison, I speak to the police officer, uh, the prison officers. If, they're, if I see them in court, I speak to the custody staff. And you'd be surprised at how bad people are being consistent. <laughs> so it sounds like your your friend was doing this all the time, whereas most prisoners don't even think to do that. They will, they will only do it when they've come into the room with me. He did lose his other Rule 11 status. He didn't, he didn't get it granted. <laughs> I think he got 15 years in the end. Um, yeah. And so I'll be watching them. So, you know, if, yeah. they're, if they're scared and cowering in the corner um, about some sort of demon or bat they can see in the corner mm. then i'm watching them w without them knowing when they're walking back to the cells i'm seeing if they're pally with their with their friends and laughing and joking mm. um and on top of that more than that i think that people who are really psychotic especially if they're paranoid they don't have an agenda to try and convince me mm. so imagine if you're actually really paranoid and you believe that people are trying to hurt you and kill you and you believe there's a conspiracy if some guy you've never met in a suit comes and sits next to you and introduces himself you're not going to tell him because why would you if anything it'd be the opposite it's quite hard to get these <laughs> symptoms out whereas somebody who's faking mental illness who wants to go to hospital they tell me almost immediately or within a few minutes you know i think i'm a doctor and i think i'm you know i need to go to hospital and blah blah, blah. people are really unwell they don't have an agenda and sometimes they're indifferent they don't even they don't even know that they're in prison or court they don't care where they end up there's a saying that crazy people don't know they're crazy yeah
Does that, does that uh, well, sometimes? so for psychosis, the vast majority of people have psychosis don't have insight, so they mm. fully believe the the uh, things they're experiencing. Yeah. It's different for neuroses like anxiety and depression. They they know that they're unwell. So we've had a guest who's been on a few times called Pepsi Watson, and he's been out in and out few, um, on a recall for his IPP. And on the most recent interview we did with him, he said lockdown, people that can't get up the cells, short staffed, self harm. Um, people committed suicide. There was a hanging, and someone cut, cut his ear off. Right. So, what what's the rate you come across self harmers? So, I think in the general population, about one percent of people uh, self harm at some point in their life. In prisons, it's something along the lines of twenty twenty five percent. It's actually very high. Yeah, Quarter. but I would say that there's there's a range of self harm. So there's um, relatively minor sort of scratching or you know picking cutting. And that can be because somebody's just trying to relieve frustration. So actually some people, for example, with depression or borderline, um, actually feel better after they've cut themselves because it kind of it um, quenches urges to be violent or to do something more serious. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you get really severe self-harm, so actual suicide attempts. So actually very recently I made a video about um, Sarah Reed. So that's a, a tragic case of a young woman. She was um, mixed race, only 31 years old. And she took a life in uh, HMP Holloway mm. in January 2016. So it's mm. really, really quite sad. Um, and I think the system failed her. I really do. What led up to that? Um, so I think she had a history of mental health issues since her own son died in 2003. Then she was really badly assaulted in 2012 by a police officer, actually. And I think it was proven in court that uh, he got actually got fired for misconduct for, mm. for what, what he did. He, he assaulted her quite badly. But the reason that um, the system failed her, I think, is because she was kept in prison for several weeks, I think like six, seven weeks, with because she needed a fitness to plead assessment. It was actually a very simple assessment. Like I could do that in an hour and write it up in maybe another four or five hours. But she was there for six, seven weeks. And I think part of the problem is that there's not really any responsibility for who does it. So if you're the prison psychiatrist, you're in charge of treating that person's mental illness in prison, giving them medication in prison. If you're the consultant psychiatrist in the secure ward, then you you help with the transfer and you treat them when they're in there. But if you need an expert witness kind of um, opinion, which is what I do, you're kind of in limbo. Nobody, you don't belong to anybody. It's up to your solicitors to reach out and, and um, <clears throat> find a psychiatrist. And some solicitors are just really disorganized and they and they don't do that for, for a number of weeks while their defendants are in on remand. So I think she was there unnecessarily and she was there too long. Uh, yeah, so very sad case. So Russell Brand has talked about low-level drug users. It should be reclassified from um, them being the criminalization of addiction to it being a mental health issue. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I would broadly agree with that, I think. I think that um, if you just take the ethics out of it, if you just look at it, at it logically, <clears throat> your average low-level drug user who's not a dealer, who's not going out hurting people, is not causing a massive damage to society. But... Um, if you criminalize them and you put them through the system, especially if they get addicted to, to harder drugs, um, yeah, then I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's, I don't see how that's helping. And, and these people are clogging society. up the prison system and clogging up the court system. It's crazy, but there's so much money being made off it. Yeah. All right. And so we are going to put the link in the description box for a psych for sore minds. Huge thank you to Shaham for coming on today and regaling us with all of these case studies. And I've learned so much as well about the, um, I was particularly fascinated when you said about which mental illnesses are correlated with the most violent crime and it's psychopaths, 
then antisocial, then the borderline, then mania, then bipolar. Yeah, so well, mania and bipolar are kind of the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, mania is uh, someone with bipolar can have a manic episode. Yeah, exactly. So if you sat here and enjoyed this as much as I have, please go over to a site for sore minds, which is Shahom's channel, and on Twitter you are Doctor S Das. So we'll put that link down there as well. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing your book, man, in Two Minds coming out. Congratulations on landing that with a really big publisher. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to do well. Uh, you, you hear these stories and they're just endlessly fascinating, aren't they? Um, all the different cases. So please let us know in the comments what you thought about this. Huge thank you to Joe and James for coming out today and filming these um we've had such a busy week we've been all over the place london filming tours in london down at castle goring with lady c on the royal family it's been quite an eventful week and um huge thank you to the new subs subscription logos in the bottom corner and most of all huge thank you to shaham for coming out today and um sharing his stories thank um, you very much for having me on Sean. yeah it's you're welcome honor Really enjoyed it. Thank yeah, you. yeah, yeah. You're such a good vibe. So we, we traditionally do a, a hug. Are you all right to hug? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In this environment. Yeah, thanks, man. Well done. Sure. Brilliant. Yeah, cheers. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.